You are listening to the Secret Police Podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do. And I'm on a mission to help us build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. My name is Jack, and I spend hours researching and engaging my morbid curiosity of dictatorships and share with you the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. We look at how secret police enforce tyranny and strike fear in their people. Today, I have something really special for you guys. Alex von Sternberg from the History of Possible podcast was generous enough to grace me with his auditory presence and talk about things like plagues from the Black Death to COVID, speculate on the origins of the Spanish flu, examine the erosion of trust in institutions, and investigate the professional managerial class. What I like about Alex, aside from his unrivaled radio voice, is his skill with words. He has an ability to tell stories in such a way that you're transported to the time, place, and events in his show. He is insanely well-read and, inc- and incredibly well-spoken, much more so than myself. I mean, seriously, upon listening to this again in post, I felt like I could barely do the English. You'll hear what I mean during this interrogation, I mean, uh, discussion. If for some reason you haven't heard History Impossible, well, then what the heck, man? I highly recommend giving it a listen. Also, this episode drops on the eve of the first birthday of Secret Police on April 1st, that fateful day back in 2022 when I launched the trailer and started this journey. Now, without further ado, here is Alex von Sternberg. When I first started podcasting, I started off with, um, I can't remember the the model name, but it was a condenser mic like the Blue Yeti. And because I don't have a proper studio, I mean, I don't even have foam on my walls. Um, (laughs) I just like, I was experimenting with different mics and I bought these, these two, um, XLR mics just to see Mm. what the difference would be. I actually like the sound quality of these better because they don't, the, the XLR mics are a little bit more focused at the Mm -hmm. front that they're like, I don't remember what it's called, but their field is right in front rather than a condenser, which kind of picks up everything. Right. Yeah. I, you know, what's funny. I don't think, uh, I've told this story, uh, but I used to record when we moved into our, our house, uh, we have two sheds uh, in the back. Um, and one of them, uh, I turned into a recording studio. I used uh, cargo blankets to create this small space nice. that was great. Like the sound was incredible in there, um, except when there was crickets outside and that was really annoying. Um, but, uh, I started to get bites on my, lo- on my, on my like lower legs, and I was oh, like, yeah? what is going on? And then I realized, oh, there's fleas in here. There was a flea infestation and I got <laughs> bitten by fleas. <laughs> so I immediately took the blankets out and, you know, washed them repeatedly and hung them out to dry. And I just haven't gone back in there. <laughs> I just, I just, <laughs> I just recorded in our home library at this point because the sound is dead enough in there nice. uh, that, it, that it's fine. But nice. yeah, so I, if if anyone was to question my pedigree as a podcaster, I got fleas for you people to get your content. <laughs> I haven't had that problem. I, yeah, do, you get, if you ever do, like, I don't know if you have like a shed or anything like that, but if you ever try to convert something outside, like, make sure you ha- you don't have fleas <laughs> <laughs> or other such small animals. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we first moved in, I you know had to remove a couple 
mummified mice and birds <laughs> from some of those places. Nice. So that nice. was that was fun. Um, I've never actually, yeah, that's really funny. I've never actually talked about the recording process on a pod, on another podcast before. So that's really interesting. <laughs> or the drama, the flea drama I went through. The flea drama. I'm just glad yeah. they didn't have your Cinea pestis in them. How's that yeah, for a seriously. transition? Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> actually, before we get into your Cinea pestis, sure. What what made you start podcasting? What made me start podcasting? Well, um, I, I can never keep track of who I've told this to. I might have told this to you when we were on Chris Jobs' show, which, by the way, people should listen to that. It was a lot of fun. I'm, I mean, Chris Jobs said he wants to have more listed men episodes, so let's uh, let's hope that he can do that soon. But, um, I. I actually started podcasting technically. I tried my hand at it back in 2011. Tried to do a culture podcast with a couple of friends of mine. Didn't really work out. I ended up moving to Chicago. So it wouldn't have worked out anyway. Shortly after moving to Chicago, I found a um, – well, actually, my, my partner Molly found this and then sent it to me. It was a, I think it was a Craigslist listing or something looking for a co-host for a video game podcast. I play a ass load of video games. So I was like, sure, why not? And then I became kind of this de facto staff writer slash podcast co-host on a now defunct video game podcast. Uh, or, uh, well, it was a podcast, but video game website, like news website and stuff. And I did that for about a year or two. And then after that, I started another culture podcast with one of the friends I had started I tried to start earlier and that one lasted for a while called I Just Don't See the Big Deal and was just us mostly talking about various cultural things that transitioned into a more strictly movies podcast and then even more niche it, it transitioned into like it, it like you know the the extreme movie iceberg or the extreme movie challenge kind of things that are so popular nowadays like we yeah. were basically doing that we did a whole episode about a Serbian film which yeah, I don't recommend watching that movie. Okay. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, I am glad I saw it because now I can say that with certainty. But it's yeah, it's about as vile. If you've ever if you've never heard of it, feel free to look it up. But you'll come away being like, why would anyone make this movie? Let alone watch it. Is it uh, like terrible? Or is it just super violent? No, like, it's actually a relatively well made movie. It's just it's extraordinarily depraved and violent. Okay. Okay. And it's, yeah, it's really unpleasant. And the thing is, there's a lot of really good unpleasant movies out there. We did an episode about what I call my favorite Holocaust film of all time, which feels so weird to say, even though I've said it many times, but this film called The Gray Zone, starring a lot of really famous people. Harvey Keitel plays a Nazi, which is great. Okay. Uh, David Arquette plays sort of the main character, the, I guess, avatar for the audience. And, um, well, Steve Buscemi is in it. Um, I love Steve Buscemi. Yeah, he's fantastic. It's I, I'm blanking on everybody else who's in it, but it's it's basically a dramatization of the camp uprising in Auschwitz in 1944 okay. that was ultimately put down. And the reason why I love that movie so much, and I had a conversation with someone I know about this who's also a film nerd, and he he was like, I don't understand why you love that movie so much. And I was just like, and he listed all all these things about it, and I was just like, those are all very fair points, but. I only love that movie as much as I do, not just because I like the aesthetic, but because in my opinion, at least, it's one of the only honest Holocaust films. Before anyone thinks I'm about to become a, like a fucking denier here, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is <laughs> it's honest in how bleak and upsetting that actual the reality of the Holocaust actually was, the banality and well, the banality of evil yeah. uh, in it, but it's also the depravity of the evil in it. 
and I feel like it's one of the, it's probably the only English language film I can think of at least that depicts the Holocaust in that way. And I think it's, I, I think it's important for that reason alone. Now, I don't even know how I got on that tangent. Oh yeah. Cause I was talking about what podcasting I was doing before this. Yeah. Anyway. So that podcast ran its course. Um, and I ultimately, and apparently that friendship also ran its course. That's, you know, one of the casualties of COVID and RIP. Uh, yeah. RIP. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. And then after that ran its course, uh, I started History Impossible in – well, actually, technically, I started working on History Impossible in early 2018. And that's – and I actually started by researching the Muslim Nazis series. Like I was – I've been working on the Muslim Nazis for like five years at this point. And, it, and it, there's good reason for that too. As, as anybody who's ever studied Yugoslavia knows, it's like that's the big hinge point for me right now. And it's taking fucking forever. <laughs> Because sorry if you don't do swearing on the show, but I don't care. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, like I started researching that, and it's such a deep dive subject as it is. But then I met Daniele Bellelli of History on Fire fame because he also lives in LA, and we hung out and chatted at Santa Monica College where he works as a teacher, and uh, he gave me the advice that I shouldn't start with a series. Like I shouldn't just go in with like a whole series because you you know it's it's just easier to do smaller scale stuff and do it quickly and get like your um you know get your core audience that way with diverse yeah. subjects. So yeah. I reoriented and then because I love to be an edgy boy, I started my podcast in January 2019 with an episode called "The Original Donald Trump," where I basically laid out how Donald Trump is just yet another man in a line, a procession of populist demagogues that America has had for many, many years. And his closest analog, I stole this from the real historian, because I'm not a real historian, but I stole it from Neil Ferguson, who did this great talk in, I believe it was, oh, was it early 2017 or late 2016? I uh, No, it was before the election, because he, he asked the audience, how many of you are going to vote for Trump? And then anyway, he laid out what he called the five ingredients for a populist backlash and then told the story of this Irish American demagogue named Dennis Kearney in California, whose antics literally led to the Chinese exclusion act, which kept Chinese people out of America for almost a century. Right. And it, it, yeah, it's, it's a crazy story. And I really want to revisit that time period too. There's like, I talked about it briefly, but like I thought about, it, especially in light of everybody always talking about how this election was stolen or that election was stolen. And I was just like, do people really should learn more about the election of 1876? Because that election came down to one electoral college vote, one. God. And then there was the great compromise that occurred from that, that arguably ended Reconstruction altogether and gave us Rutherford B. Hayes, as he was known to his detractors. And yeah. Yeah, like that. That I, I really want to revisit that story specifically of that election. There's a book that just it has such a great title called "Fraud of the Century" that I'm planning to read and one day go back to that. And I also really want to go back and talk about the Chinese immigrant experience in the 19th century because that's also really just so fascinating to me. Um, no, but anyway, is, so that's how I got into it. That's how I started. That's really cool. Um, Thanks. Yeah, it's sort of a side note that um, the Chinese exclusion stuff. I sort of have a somewhat personal story about that too. No kidding. Just, Give me. just well, just quickly. Um, there was a, I'm not going to name names, but there was a, <laughs> a, a girl in my hometown who mm -hmm. was, um, she was killed in a car accident. And basically what happened was she was, she 
my hometown is in a pretty rural area. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of forests, a lot of very winding roads and like blind turns. Mm. And she was heading into town from her house and a, a Greyhound bus veered into her lane and hit her straight on. Oh my what God. Ha- what ended up happening was the, the driver apparently had a, had a stroke at like the worst time possible and yeah. passed out. And like I said, veered into the lane and and killed her. Well, she didn't. She didn't die instantly. She died at the hospital. Oof. Yeah. Now her parents tried to sue for a wrongful death, mm-hmm. and it turned out in the state of Washington that they were not able to sue for wrongful death because of um, because of these laws that were uh, put in on the books during the time of Chinese exclusion. That prevented specifically parents of Chinese immigrants to sue companies in the U.S. Oh my for wrongful death. Yeah, and I think the ironic part of that is this: this girl um, was was white. You know, she was like redhead. She was like a redhead, freckles. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, a white woman. <clears throat> Not even the target demographic demographic of those uh, of those laws. So I just interesting kind of. That's really, that's wild, especially because like, it's also ironic because it's Washington, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's about as liberal a state as it gets as, as one might assume, you know, and they haven't take, they haven't done away with probably the most racist legislation until at least the Japanese internment and Jim Crow laws, of course, too. Yeah. And that can't be, I found that really interesting because I guess her parents did manage to get some of that legislation changed, but I, I was which is which is great. I mean, sure. I think that certainly needed to be fixed, but it's also kind of interesting that there wasn't any other wrongful death uh, case in the last hundred years that could overturn yeah. that. <laughs> well, and, and there's like a term I when you were talking there, I was like remembering. Uh, I recently heard it mentioned, and I, and I it's always like the, the, it, it, there's like a term for those kinds of laws. That are still on the books but are never enforced because people just there. You only have so many hours in the day to look through, you know, how many laws a state has, right? And some of them are just like really weird and out there. And I forgot what they're called, uh, but this is one of those t- times where it's like, okay, well, maybe we should actually be hiring more people to do that to like look for these laws that actually do hurt people today. Yep. <laughs> but at the same time, there's the famous. Uh, well, I don't know if it was famous, but my my mother. Uh, told me about it because she and my father lived in Kansas before they moved to Minnesota, where I was born. Uh, but she was telling me about how Kansas had a law, and, and as far as I know, they still do. They might not be there anymore, and it's probably not enforced. But you're not allowed to serve alcohol on planes when they fly over Kansas airspace, when they fly through Kansas airspace, I should say. Oh man, I've heard that. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> anymore at least because yeah it was a law just i don't know if it still is I, mean, right, I just right. would love the idea if it was still enforced though there used uh, to be this youtube video and maybe it's still out there of just like the top 10 dumbest laws and there was yeah. one about like you're not allowed to drive between north dakota and minnesota with a duck on your head i mean i don't know if that's yeah. i've heard i've heard that too yeah yeah 
Well, I mean, and then if you really want to talk about it, Minnesota did have a dumb law for a long time. I think it got repealed. Maybe you can correct me on that, but of no selling alcohol on Sundays, that weird puritanical law. Yeah. That, yeah. I think they got rid of it though, if I remember they right. They did. When my when my now wife and I moved here in twenty sixteen, that was still a thing. You yeah. can they were, you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. It's just so so stupid to me. But you, but also, you have no idea how much my face lit up when I moved to Chicago and I went to Target for the first time and I was like, oh, you can buy booze at Target now. Hell yeah, oh, you can. A, that's amazing. Not at all of them. <laughs> but Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Now, the, um, yeah, the, 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 uh, the weird laws of various states that are informed by, you know, like old religious practices are probably my favorite. Now, I get it why Utah, for example, is next to impossible to buy booze in because it's a Mormon state. But, right. you know, right. like aside from that, like I, I, I think that – you know what? I, there probably is, but if there isn't, someone should start a podcast just about silly laws. Oh, America. there's got to be. I, I would be shocked if there wasn't a podcast. <laughs> if about not, that. we've just given somebody a solid gold opportunity. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then they're going to become like the most successful history podcaster since Dan Carlin. And we'll just be like, son of a bitch. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if, if there isn't if there isn't one though, maybe we should start one. <laughs> just uh, a semi-regular visitation of like a of a of a seriously insane law. <laughs> Yeah, right. We'd have to get a lawyer and then uh, some time that, you know, time is time is scarce these yes. days. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you when going back to your um, your early s- building your own studio days, you said that you were <laughs> being bit by fleas and you said, thank God that none of them had Yarsinia pestis. Tell, tell us why you uh, tell us why you said that. Well, because I have been reading a lot about the plague, as, as it was known, or the Black Death lately, because I've been just sort of thinking about uh, – well, before we started recording, I mentioned how, it, as silly as it sounds, President Biden basically gave an end date to the pandemic. He said it was over like in an interview, I think, at either the beginning of this year or late late last year. I don't remember when it was where he said as much, but May 11th is the day – that COVID-19 is quote unquote over, you know, and obviously COVID-19 is going to be with us forever at this right. point. And I actually have an interesting digression about that, that I was learning about thanks to reading Dr. Nicholas Christakis's book, Apollo's Arrow, which uh, was sort of like the first, it, it was sort of written like a historical document because it came out in 2020 and was the first book that came out about COVID-19. It was very interesting. And he lays out some predictions about what's going to happen after the pandemic itself ends. Because that's one thing that people need to realize is that a pandemic can be over without the illness being gone. Like mm-hmm. a pandemic doesn't end when a virus is eradicated. Like that just is not how it works. But I was just thinking like how like pandemics end and looking at the Black Death specifically, it ended like pretty much all pandemics have ended. I mean, it caused a lot more destruction than pretty much any other one. I think technically the Spanish flu did kill more people, but it was less of a proportion than the Black Death. The numbers of the Black Death are staggering. Like Estimates range all the way up to 200 million dead people in Europe alone, which would be 60% of the population. That's crazy. It is crazy. I mean, but you got to keep in mind too that the global population at that time, especially in Europe, was less than it is now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In Europe now, it's like 700 million. So it would be 
on the I mean, it would probably be am I getting that number right? I think it's 700 million, but it would be much more. It would be like on like it would be around 400 million people would be dead in Europe alone. I mean, I, I did do the math when I was thinking about it uh, and, and and jotting down some ideas that uh, it's about um, – I think it would be like if the Black Death hit us or something like the Black Death hit us now, it would be something along the lines of like 2.1 billion people would die. That's insane. That's ins- – I mean those numbers – I mean – you know the the quote unquote low end of seventy five million is still a number that I can't even wrap my head around. It's it's just it's it is that Stalin quote or the purported quote about the million deaths being a statistic. Yeah, I mean you're so, you're talking about like sports stadiums upon sports stadiums full of people. Yeah, I mean really that's the best way I can I can right. think of that. Well, in a sense, that is a I mean that like. If we got hit with something like that, sports stadiums would probably have to be used as plague pits. Exactly. I mean, it's. I mean, I'm not even trying to be funny, but it's. It's kind of. It's darkly funny in a way. It's like if you get hit with a pandemic that bad. I mean, we really should count ourselves lucky that COVID nineteen was what it was and not something not like a, a civilization ending event. Right. Though it was civilization disrupting, and that's sort yeah. of the point that I was thinking about. Is like, okay, well, a, a natural disaster, especially a protracted one like a pandemic. It, it's a disruption. Even if not that many people in relative terms die, it's a massive disruption to everything that is part of our way of life. And the more interconnected life is, which it is now compared to you know the Black Death, it's the disruption is going to be felt even more profoundly, especially when you know states get involved. Yeah. During the Black Death, though, the disrupt. I mean, it, it's a mistake to think that that 14th century. Europe or, or the world in general was not globalized. It was very globalized. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Black Death spread from, you know, it, it's sort of theorized to at least that version of the plague originated in the Tian Shan mountain region near uh, Kyrgyzstan and China, like in that region over there. It's, it's specifically, they've found plague bodies, like bodies that had, you know, plague bacterium in them. Uh, they uh, in this place called Lake Isikul, and they were able to date it to around 1336, if memory serves. So we're pretty sure that's where the Black Death started. Wow! But you know, as people know, the you know the plague has been with us for a very long time. The plague of Justinian, the sixth century, is another example of that. Though there was genetic analysis done in 2018, I think, and they found like genetic remnants of Yersinia pestis in, I believe, Sweden. And that dated to about five thousand years ago. So we've wow. been with yeah, you know, we've had the plague a lot. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean that stuff just once it's here, it doesn't it doesn't go away. It's a no. it's a biological entity that isn't easily put to extinction. Yeah, well, and the good news is is that because it's bacterial, you know, we have antibiotics. We can, you know, if it, the plague though, here's the thing: if left untreated, it still kills you in like a day. Like yeah. modern medicine will not save you if you don't get the treatment right away. If you somehow get plague and they which, take it seriously if you right, have the exactly. plague I mean, it, it's treatable and it, i mean people may kind of laugh it off now but it's still something that i think um different hospital systems will take seriously and certainly mm-hmm. put, put a patient into quarantine for because they don't want it to spread absolutely yeah i mean there's uh funny enough well, it's not funny it's actually very disturbing but thanks to a lot of overcrowding and filthy conditions and so forth, there at least has been fears of Black Death outbreaks here in LA on Skid Row. Like 
people do get plague that. every year, but like yeah. Skid Row was particularly vulnerable to it. Apparently, this is like a this is a story from a long time ago too. I think it was like 2015, 2016 or something. But yeah, that was back when like vaccination was like only controversial to wine moms in Orange County, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, but with that said, um, that that's the other big difference now compared to, you know, 14th century is vaccination. Um, but the interesting thing about COVID-19 is that as time has gone on, it's starting to become clear that the new variants are more and more virulent, if I remember right, like Omicron, but yep. less fatal. And that is and, that's pretty typical for a viral right. evolution. And mm-hmm. that's because um a, a deadly virus isn't going to survive and reproduce if it kills its host. Right. Yeah. That's and why you um, want it to be it wants to be. I mean, I guess it's kind of funny to say it wants to be because yeah. it doesn't think it doesn't it doesn't it think needs that way. To be. It's the natural it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. It needs to it needs to replicate itself and not kill the very machinery that it needs to perpetuate its existence. Sure. Yeah. And I, and the funny thing is, is that that's like, even though I think when someone who is particularly, we can call them plague fearful, if you will, mm-hmm. they like when they hear more virulent, that's all they hear. They don't hear less deadly because they're just thinking, well, what if it's, you know, it doesn't matter if it's less deadly. What if it kills me or kills my loved one? And I understand that fear, but what they need to understand is that no, no, no. When it really is less deadly because it does not behoove viral evolution to kill its host. Like you just said. And uh, Dr. Christakis in his book said something which I am shocked he didn't get quote unquote canceled for. I mean, and he's like, you know, he's all about, you know, well, maybe not masking anymore now that the research has come out about that, but he's all for vaccination and all that stuff. I mean, he's very much a public health. He's a public health guy. Like that's his job. Uh, He's a Yale professor, I believe of public health, but he, um, uh, he was talking about how there was evidence, which I did not know about this. And I think the evidence was found in, Oh boy, was it 2018, 2019? Doesn't really matter. The point is, there was some analysis conducted on the 1889 so-called Russian flu, mm-hmm. which, like, it, it, it's harder to do that than it is, say, to study the uh, H1N1 uh, influenza A virus that created the Spanish flu, because you know we, we, we were able to extract it. The 1889 flu, the Russian flu, was harder to get. I don't think they were able to actually get uh, – no, no, they did. They did do a, a genetic analysis of it, so they got a hold of it. But the point is what they're starting to see is that this virus might have actually been a coronavirus similar to COVID-19 because there's a lot of crossover of different uh, like aspects of it. In fact, I actually have the information pulled up right here. Does it share very similar genes? I uh, – I'm trying to remember. Let's see. No, no, no. Okay, so I got it here. I'll just read you this quote from this study that you know was that that pulled this data together uh, from this uh, this guy named Patrick Birch, who uh, published a study on the National Institutes of Health website. This section I, I I pulled from says it is known that the second half of the 19th century was marked by concerted expansion of the live cattle trade, which was greatly facilitated by railways. By comparing the waves of flu pandemics, the evolution of the Russian pandemic was not similar to the seasonality of the flu pandemics of 1918, 1957, and 1968. 
Recently, an attempt was made to predict the uncertain evolution of the COVID-19 pandemic using modeling based on the epidemiology of seasonal coronaviruses HCOV-OC43 at HCOV-HKU1. While the R0 transmission rate was shown to be 2.2 during winter and 1.3 during summer, the emergence of highly contagious mutants of SARS-CoV-2 call these data into question. The hypothesis of a coronavirus of the origin of the Russian influenza is also corroborated by singular clinical features. For example, the protean character of its clinical symptomology, which resembles COVID-19, with multivisceral pulmonary digestive renal neurological attacks, as well as prostration and psychiatric disorders. The early relapses and sequelae are likewise reminiscent of COVID-19 complications. So that is basically a really like convoluted way of saying that the Russian flu resembled COVID-19 more than it resembled other flu pandemics. And what they were able to figure out was that the Russian flu being a coronavirus shares a lot more genetic characteristics with one of the many coronaviruses that cause the common cold. So the possibility, therefore, is that we could be looking at the beginning of a new cold virus. Like that's what COVID is going to become potentially. Sure. Which is wild to imagine, first of all. It, it is. Um, but it and it and it's it's interesting too, because there are people out there that have had COVID that have these very bizarre lingering symptoms. Yeah, long COVID, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah. And it's like I think it's what's interesting are the the young people, particularly people in their twenties who have had the virus, but then they're having like issues with their heart. Mm, like, I know, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, and I know yeah. of one person. I don't. I don't know them personally, um, mm-hmm. but I. I know of somebody who is is having issues with like their their pulse being really rapid. That wasn't a mm-hmm. thing for them before they had COVID. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing that really intrigues me is the psychiatric disorders or uh, symptoms, rather, that cropped up with COVID. But again, it's funny because I did an episode about the Spanish flu, about pandemics, and about how they how they affect how we even like how we look at the world. And I referenced the Russian flu at one point. And what's so wild about that to me is. I, I talked about you know the infamous painting called The Scream by Edvard Munch. That has been said in different sources that that painting was inspired by his bout with the Russian flu because it caused him to see colors strangely and caused him to just see nothing but just sort of focus on the oh suffering God. around him, which is where the scream itself comes from. But like you that's, know, it's. It's, it's funny it, you say that because yeah. I wondered during the riots if mass hysteria was a symptom of. <laughs> I of mean, COVID. I, th- let's call that a rhetorical question because it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like mass delusion is very much a symptom of a pandemic. Now, Alex, tell us since since the administration is saying that the pandemic is over on the eleventh, what does that exactly mean? Like what what. Uh, are there are there 
I don't know. I want to. I don't want to say trigger laws, but are there <laughs> certain provisions that are supposed to go in effect, or certain things that are supposed to stop on the eleventh? It's, it's about. I mean, that's yeah. It, as I understand it, the May eleventh date is when basically COVID aid comes to an end from the government. Okay. Like, now, like, how about like, recommendations about masking? Uh, that I haven't looked into. Uh, when it comes to masking, I think that's just going to be a controversial issue, no matter what. I don't okay. think. I mean, studies have shown that masking. Uh, does not significantly impact the spread of the virus. Multiple studies have shown that, like longitudinally, especially. They've also shown that masking also can perpetuate the growth of other illnesses within the mask because people yep. don't, you know, are very people sloppy with watching. their masks. People aren't exactly. watching. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, and cloth masks are really terrible at stopping the spread anyway. We've known that for a long time at this point. So it's the N95s and the surgical masks that you're supposed to use if you're going to do it. And and it's interesting too because I I I did I heard about this study on an episode of Reason, the study looking at um looking at masking. Mm-hmm. And yeah, their conclusions were basically that it didn't that masking doesn't really help to stop the spread of COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think even I think Greg um, Greg Zink on the Smoke Filled Rooms podcast, right. which you should definitely check out if you haven't. People definitely should. That. He's 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 put some good stuff out there. I had him on to talk about Marilyn Monroe recently, which was that was very a fun. Episode. Thank yeah. you. That, yeah, his series of Marilyn Monroe's mysterious circumstances of her death is is very wild. I mean, I and anything that like, <laughs> I, I even though I've softened on my assessment of JFK as a president over the years, anything that makes his family look like the psychopaths that they are just puts a <laughs> smile on my face. <laughs> so, yeah, so anyway. with masking, what's what's interesting is, and the question that I haven't heard posed in discussions about masks when it comes Mm -hmm. to COVID is, does that mean that you would be okay with your surgeon not wearing a mask if you were being cut open? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the visceral reaction in my stomach, this is so interesting, is to go, good God, no. Put that mask that would on. Be mine. That would be mine too, to be honest. Right, but that's the thing. Is like, I well, the impre- I, okay. I let's defer to doctors on this. Obviously, I actually do have a doctor friend whose uh, wife is a surgeon. They're both doctors, uh, but like, I should ask her if, um, uh, like, like if the if the procedure for sanitization is more just better safe than sorry before surgery, rather than uh, like, oh, this provably helps. Like because at the same time, with all of those precautions, you know, taken in in you know in surgery, people get shit sewn into them constantly. Yeah, <laughs> like things sure. fall into them, which is sure. so disturbing. Uh, but and it's, the important distinction, I think, with surgery, which which is why I think at least right. me saying this without having any actual data, is the <laughs> distinction between wearing masks in a in a surgery setting and not just out in public is the fact that your your main defense your skin is is open mm-hmm. it's just your it's just your innards and you you are probably more prone to infection in that way with somebody not wearing a mask than if you're just out like on a on a public on public right. transport right yeah i mean and i and i think that that I, I see the distinction there. Like I, again, I think that it is different, but it also is a it's a very good rhetorical question. I think. Um, well, it's not a rhetorical question, but a, 
a question to provoke a conversation about that kind of stuff. But because I, I think the big thing, the big casualty of COVID-19 wasn't the six odd million dead people, right. uh, though they obviously were. And I only thankfully, but also tragically only know one person who lost a family member to COVID. Well, um, my, my, my wife's stepmom actually passed from COVID. Oh, geez. I'm sorry. And, yeah. and, you know, full disclosure, like whoever's listening, make of this what you will. She wasn't vaccinated. Mm. Um, however, mm. it's quite possible that, um, that there, she may have had some undiagnosed yeah, sure. comorbidity. Yeah. That being said too, yeah. my, uh, my, um, uh, what is it called? Father-in-law. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> he, he is also not vaccinated. He still isn't oh, okay. vaccinated and he did get it the same time that she did. But for him, it was just a, a mild cold. And obviously yeah, for mean, her, that's the bedeviled, uh, the bedevilry. I, I wanted to, I've always wanted to say that, uh, <laughs> the bedevilry of, of really of <laughs> disease in general, but of COVID-19 yeah. in particular, that, I mean, maybe there is more data on why that happens. I mean, I'm still convinced. Uh, Molly, my partner, and I are still convinced that we had COVID in January 2020 <laughs> because her father came and visited from China after being in the hospital for a quote unquote lung thing in lung late 2019. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I wonder what that is, and I wonder why it's just yeah. That's our conspiracy. Theory. I feel very reassured if some doctor showed an X-ray of my lungs and was like, "Oh, over here, you it's got a some- lung thing." <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's like, oh man, you're supposed to go to medical school. Yeah. Well, I got to say, like, I mean, if, if we did have COVID, cause we did get sick after he visited and it was a very strange kind of cold where it, it just knocked us on our ass for like two days and I just felt like shit. And then we just got better. And I, and it was, I, it's never, I've never had a cold like that in my life. And I've had a lot of colds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's possible. I don't know. I mean, I haven't gotten, I think at this point, I don't even know if an antibody test would prove anything, but it, it also was very strange that I went to Vegas last year, almost a year ago, exactly in 2022. And as you probably can guess, Vegas is probably the least concerned about COVID spread out of any city in, you know, the Western region. Right. I mean, and Florida may be up there, but maybe. Yeah. And, and I, but I was in Vegas and I was like, I remember saying before I left, I was like, this is going to be where I get COVID because I was just going all over the place <laughs> with my friends. Uh, we were drinking a lot, obviously we were harming our immune systems in so many words, licking and floors, doorknobs. Yeah. Totally licking rails. everything. Yeah. Not, yeah. I mean, I, the, I will say that one thing that, uh, even though it, I think it's all also been called into question, but the one thing that I've been doing a lot more because of COVID is I wash my hands a lot more than I used to. So that's probably a, a good thing. And but the thing is, I was unmasked the entire time. Nobody else was masked. I saw people wearing unvaccinated and proud of it t-shirts in Vegas, and I was nice. standing near nice. them. And I I didn't get sick. What's the pride stuff that bothers me about that? I don't care like what you want to yeah. do, but if but like advertising it. It's well, it's sort of like this. It, it, yeah, there's the the political pride in vaccination status one way or the other, because it exists in both directions is mm-hmm. disgusting to me. Like, yeah, I, I, yeah I just, and that's fair. That's fair. Like I, I have more contempt in my heart for the people who are like total safetyists, like the people who like brag essentially by taking Twitter selfies or posting selfies on Twitter rather and 
of them at the airport wearing like multiple masks and bragging about how many jabs they've gotten. I'm just like, sure. what? It's, what it's annoying. Of, like, how sick are you? You know yeah, what I mean? Like, right. I, I actually don't really have that much contempt for the unvaccinated and proud of it in that sense because. Like I usually think it's more like at least what they're proud of is that they're not being told what to do. So I have sympathy for that or they're not doing what they're being told to do, which I'm always going to have sympathy for that because I'm a jerk, I guess. I don't know. But (laughs) but but at the same time, I, I, I just I don't understand why there's moral value being placed on this shit. I mean, I do understand because that's what we were talking about, what you referenced earlier. It's hysteria. It's mass hysteria. That's what it is. Um, But what I was going to say originally, though, like before we got sidetracked there, was that the biggest harm that I I think COVID caused, the biggest casualty was trust. And and I don't even mean just in institutions because I think a lot of institutions were already on the rocks. Like journalism was already hated. Before yeah, COVID even happened, sure. it just it just intensified it. Washington already hated by most people, and COVID hadn't even happened yet, and yep. it just intensified it. So COVID was like a lot of natural disasters, pandemics especially, a mere accelerant for pre-existing trends. Yeah, that's what the Black Death was in a lot of ways too. But uh, and unfortunately, I sort of I, I kind of I think the CDC certainly like mismanaged the trust that they yes. had. Now, this is yes. probably going to sound super silly, but I think the CDC uh, trust was riding high when The Walking Dead came out. Because probably <laughs> because media, no, seriously, media yeah, stuff yeah. like that that portrays institutions as um, as competent. I mean, in that show, it's the CDC basically right. doesn't exist, but. Um, but it it was good marketing for them, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of when, after watching that, that's kind of when I went down sort of a rabbit hole of like, okay, what is this institution? What kind of people work there? And stuff like that. And and it seems like they, I mean, shoot, even when I think, I think quarantine. I don't. Have you seen those movies based off of um, Rex? Oh, it's not a Spanish movie. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, quarantine. That was like a found footage film or something. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, of course, the original Rec, which is Spanish, like I said, wouldn't uh-huh. have the CDC, but quarantine did. And I, I thought maybe too that that's when your when your institution is being used in media sort of like free advertising really right yeah i mean and you know the more conspiratorial uh, conspiratorial minded are going to say oh well they funded it or something like that but it's it's that it, no. i don't even think that matters <laughs> i think the point is that like you're right that i think that that people wanted to trust the cdc initially but yeah. the problem is that the cdc was giving mixed messages pretty much from day one which and is too getting, bad and and then when they got I, for me it was when they and everybody else got caught up in the culture war battles of the summer of 2020 like because that's ultimately yeah. what that, it was it was violent culture war yeah that was that was really that was like, really too bad i mean i know i talked about this on the listed ben but the whole sure. thing with the like the anti um anti lockdown protests the were, inconsistency were treated yeah. as vile and then the racial protests even though they were like basically burning us cities down was treated as like the right thing to do and i just thought that was so yeah i i said this like the most activisty i will ever get like publicly is i'll always say never let anyone forget fiery but mostly peaceful never let anyone forget that <laughs> because that or also that racism is also a health cri- a public health crisis like are, are like 
that is the most the, there's so many reasons why that makes me angry one because it basically is setting you up for an impossible like debate because you can't say no it's not without someone saying so you don't think racism matters it's like no racism does matter it is a blight on our society it's a blight on the human race i would say because everybody has it in them but yeah. like to, to equate it with a public health crisis to equate it with something that actually was a crisis as in a pandemic that was killing people was the most unethical thing medical professionals could do. I, I couldn't wrap my head around like the gall to do something like that. Sure. Now, sure. And, and that's I, when I was like, Oh, this is mass hysteria. This is not, I think that people saying those things, they're not doing it for nefarious reasons. They're saying it because they actually think it's true. And sure. that is even more disturbing in a lot of ways. I'm going to push back on that just a little sure. bit. Okay. Like, I, I think I, I think I mostly agree with you, but also full disclosure for anybody that doesn't know, I don't know if I talked about this on my show. Um, I do, I am currently uh, in a master's of public health program. Okay. Okay. So, cool. so I can say that like, yes, like in the classroom, it is taught, at least at my institution, that um, that racism is a public health crisis. And I think there are some different ways you could sort of look at that. Sure. And one way you could look at that is in North Minneapolis, mm-hmm. which if you're not familiar, North Minneapolis is one of those areas that's just like been for decades just perpetually – downtrodden like it's yeah. just it's compared to south minneapolis it's like distinctly being from more, minneapolis like yeah it's that's been yeah. the trend like it's for a as rough long as I can area yeah, yeah. I mean, well technically i was born and raised in minneapolis during the when it was the era where it was called murderapolis so it was kind of all over the place but sure, yeah. Sure. yeah 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 i i mean yeah south minneapolis gradually became more and more gentrified as time went on and um and really the only time that you know that reversed was during the summer of 2020 right because if for listeners who don't know uh of your show i actually my mom still lives in a house that i grew up in and that was only five blocks from where george floyd was murdered so oh my gosh yeah i i i used to um my my old babysitter way back in the day she passed from leukemia oh no but she was um her house was like maybe a block from there, which is I on Chicago. Imagine. What is it? Chicago and Third, I think. Chicago and Third. Oh, yeah. uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, she, yeah, I know exactly. That's near the freeway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's very close. <laughs> now, yeah. um, so anyway, I've, so Minneapolis or North Minneapolis is a pretty just like a, an area that struggles economically, socioeconomically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, and it is generally more of a uh of a of a black neighborhood or more of uh-huh. a like a minority neighborhood and yeah yeah, yeah. The th- so i think where the public health aspect comes in is north minneapolis at one point i don't know if this is still true but they that those neighborhoods in north minneapolis did tend to s- still have um Houses that had construction with lead paint and lead pipe. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't until like maybe 10 years ago that Mm. a lot of the lead piping at least, or some of the remaining lead piping was replaced. Whereas I would imagine other, there's like probably asbestos problems too. in a lot of these properties. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Whereas in other areas that I, that I, I guess you could say are 
more predominantly white. Um, they right. didn't have the problem. Now make of that like what you will. I'm not here to say that that's right. Like the yeah. Intersection of racism and public health, but it's just one thing that I've come away with from the program is that st- statistically, some of these, some of these ailments or just these like I described with pipes, some of these like leftover mm-hmm. remnants from the past do tend to affect these sort of minority areas more. And now you could say that's probably more of an issue with um, income, which it probably is. I think class right. is more of an issue than race, really. Absolutely. No, yeah. I mean, I when you <laughs> get a couple beers in me, I'm going to start sounding like an actual socialist in a lot of cases. Oh, I've already had one beer. I'm drinking this drive-through red. <laughs> that sounds uh, like, oh. Fuck. God, I miss beer in Minneapolis. Oh, man. <laughs> California's uh, my, not that bad. I mean, especially if you go down to San Diego, but Minneapolis beer. Oh, man. I wish we could get it here. <laughs> you got to come and you got to come and visit. And if you do, we'll, yeah. we'll go to one of the breweries. I mean, I'm partial to Surly. I've always been partial to Surly. I've been partial oh, to Surly Surly's since they good. were just run out of a garage in uh, <laughs> Brooklyn Center. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that main like Surly campus over by yeah. the University of Minnesota, I think they closed. Yeah. It might be reopened, but. Well, we went there last summer when we were visiting. So oh, never maybe mind. Something but happened I just, I just since then. <laughs> okay, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, because yeah, they and they also have some of the most incredible like music shows. Like, I was shocked looking at the lineup they had last summer. They had like the National was playing at one point. It was just oh no, it was wild. But um, but anyway, yeah. I well, I will defer to you. Obviously, if you're in the public health program. Um, but I, I think that the reason why I, I take issue, the reason, the real reason why I took issue with it, as I kind of laid out, was because we were in the middle of a public health crisis, right. like involving a, a, a pandemic that we didn't fully understand yet. And I felt that right. that was kind of like you, it just felt like such a separate conversation that they were trying to fold into the conversation. And by doing so, they they just kind of. I it just there was just it just kind of broke my brain honestly when that happened. I think they were because, taking the opportunity of of the of just sort of like the whole the response to George to George Floyd right to to show or to I don't want to say market but to label racism <laughs> as this as a public health crisis in that time. I mean mm-hmm. they didn't do that with Philando Castile and they didn't really do that with anybody. Mm-hmm. Pre- with anybody previous anybody yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean yeah like, they definitely didn't do it with tony Timpa in 2016 the white guy who was killed the exact same way george floyd was yeah yeah that, that that's a cheap shot i i'll i'll own up to that being a cheap shot <laughs> i just saw this I, I just saw this thing on reddit too i don't know i don't <laughs> there's some stuff on there that like i wish well actually i don't because i don't like the national news but there's some stuff on there that i'm sometimes surprised doesn't make the national news mm-hmm. but one thing i saw in there the other day was a arrest of a of a guy uh, at a gas station and they had him on the ground next to one of the pumps and the oh, cops geez. were tasing him but right, they right. yeah they ignited some fuel on the ground oh, and the guy that's funny but the guy caught on funny. fire. No, they put him out. I mean, I think he was fine, but it's still, it's just like. That's, that's, that's not funny, kind of but thing. I'm laughing. I'm sorry. That's terrible. It is terrible. It is actually terrible. Yes. We do not condone lighting <laughs> people, on people on fire. <laughs> I must have read a fire. Oh, Lord. Wait, so this, uh, but this was just like a, a 
like I almost said happy accident. It was a it was a horrible accident. Happy they didn't intend it just what see again, I hear that and you know what I see? I don't see a bunch of KKK members dressed up as police. I see police being fucking stupid. Yeah. I mean, to, like, KKK like that's the big issue for me. <laughs> was really was really weird to yeah. me. Also, I don't it felt like that history was probably being stretched a little bit. I mean, honestly, that's probably something I haven't decided yet if I'm going to do the clan as a secret police because they don't re- <laughs> no, because uh, they don't really answer to a, a yeah. governing body except there was there one were some members of the KKK connected Missis- to Congress I in believe. Mississippi. To yeah, specifically, there was some. I haven't yeah, really read that. The KKK thoroughly. is more of like an extrajudicial terrorist group. I mean, is how I would describe it. Yeah, it's them. not really. It's because it's extrajudicial that I don't think yeah. it really counts as a secret well, police. Well, I mean, technically, secret police by definition are extrajudicial. Uh, judicial. That's a hard word to say for me for some reason. Well, they they like act. I mean, so they're they're established jujitsu. I want to say ju. I almost said jujitsu. They're established. It's this. It's this beer. I'm telling you. They're established. Ju- no, it's just a hard word to say. That's all we're gonna say. Just a hard word to say. Judicial. Judicially, <laughs> legally, but yeah, they they do act in an extrajudicial manner. Yeah, I mean that isn't it. Well, see now, see now, I think you should do it because that just sounds like such an interesting angle to take on the KKK that they would that they would look at things like that, uh, like that you could look at them as a secret police force for more racist members of the elite. You could say like a decentralized, well, they aren't decentralized, but like the, the power structures that uh, benefit from the KKK's actions were much more diffuse than a government, for example. But yeah, I don't, but the thing is though, a lot of even racists like Woodrow Wilson, for example, uh, which uh, my friend CJ Kilmer just dropped an incredible five and a half hour episode on in his Wilson series, DHP Villains, Woodrow Wilson series, that talks about Wilson and how much of a fucking racist he was. <laughs> and <laughs> and even by the standards of the time that he was living in a lot of ways. But even he did not like the KKK. He thought that they – he was all about like law and order and that kind right. of stuff. And that's right. usually – like I think that that's probably a more common sentiment among racists from 100 years ago. They just didn't like the – the uh, the it's it, I would I would I'm trying to think of like a good like it's analogy, an, it's enough to keep ahead. it's an like the, in like maybe back in the day like like racist elites were of the thought that it's enough to keep certain groups like out of our clubs and institutions yes. but it's it's too far for us to like actively go out there and like hunt them down and like right. string them up from trees because that's just not. That's well, just, yeah, it's bad. It's bad, bad optics. Bad <laughs> optics. I mean, it's just like I, I honestly like. I think even if you're, I don't know. You know what? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the uh, yeah. The, the, also, the thing is, um, the best way to describe Woodrow Wilson and what was literally progressive racism is it's the it's the paternalistic form of racism. The, the kind that I think is really the main kind that persists to this day, the paternalistic kind, where it doesn't really look at people of color as human beings. It looks at them, it looks at them as representatives and avatars. Of a, of a group, yeah. Of a group, exactly. Yeah. Like, like, yes, I have Jewish heritage. How does – like how could I possibly represent the very wide variety of – 
like Jewish opinions, for lack of a better term. It reminds like, me of that line from South Park where Butters said, "That's how the word. The, that's how the uh, world works now. You get blamed for something the group did, even if you didn't do nothing." Yeah. <laughs> I got, I got to go back and watch more South Park. I, I never get sick of that show. Uh, but They got yeah. uh, sued by – or I think maybe the suit dropped, but they were going to be sued by uh, Meghan Merkel and uh, Prince oh my, Harry. For they really tried something. to sue oh, – oh, I'm not which even is, touching that. That, makes is, me, <laughs> that just makes me hate them even more than I already do. It's kind of funny because like they've gotten death threats from like terrorist groups. So I L- they, Yes. Oh, yeah. The Muhammad that. debacle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember that episode. It aired on – like Easter weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, that um I can't well, I'm not shocked at all that 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 narcissistic power couple wanted to sue them. Like Jesus. I just anyway, uh, <laughs> like but yeah, my point is just that like there's no way someone can possibly represent a group even if they especially I would say if they claim to. Like those are the people that I just they're just obvious narcissists to me. Now thankfully people don't that's not really in vogue to do that. At least I don't think so, but it, no one really does anything to stop that notion from being believed that just because Ibram X. Kendi writes a completely psychotic book with psychotic recommendations for how to solve racism, like people are going to uh, – we're looking at him as like this sort of – like this this guru. I mean he actually has been sort of put in the guru box even almost to an official capacity. There was a great podcast series by Helen Lewis of The Atlantic called – uh, I think it's just called the New Gurus, and she talked to Abram Kendi about that status, and it's something he claims he's uncomfortable with, and I'm inclined to believe him. He probably didn't think it was going to be like that. He just wanted to get paid for writing, you know, a low resolution book that gets people talking or something. But the point is, is that he doesn't really do much to stop people from treating him like a guru, like a representative. When, like, I like. He's one of those defund the police type people. And then even when like polls from Gallup come out that show the vast majority of black Americans want either the same amount of police or more police, like like the only takeaway, the only critical takeaway I can get from that is, okay, if if push came to shove, it's more about we want better police. And that is like all that needed to be said. But that's just not what the narrative was allowed to be. Because that's too boring. It well, it's capitalizing on a on an anger and a right a zeitgeist that's out there now amongst right. I, I well to loop this politics. back to the public health conversation, um, or the public health uh, 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 rhetoric we could call yeah. it. Yeah. I, I just had a, I just had a thought because we were talking about the the degradation of trust, which I think applied to not just institutions but to other people as well, which is also pretty common if you ask me in times of crisis, of pandemic crisis. But I think that I, – I wonder though if the, if the lack of trust in the CDC was already being made pretty manifest by the time George Floyd was killed because maybe in their mind, the CDC or the, the doctors who signed those public letters, maybe they were thinking, okay – Pretty much everybody is galvanized around this event. We need to get in on this to let them know that we're not callous because we've already been getting accused of you know, callousness or whatever or of, of, of getting things wrong. We need to get this right. Otherwise, they're just going to lose trust in us altogether and they just made a really big miscalculation on how – like on how to communicate that. I mean this is just speculative on my part. I'm just wondering what you think about that. 
I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I feel like I say that a lot when people ask me questions. Sure, sure, sure. But it's good to uh, not know. Well, it's just like their so their job their job is to perform epidemiology. They're supposed to track diseases mm-hmm. and make recommendations to health departments and encourage people to take precautions. Right. And I mean, maybe all they had to do was send out a tweet or make an official statement condemning what happened to Floyd. Of course. And not necessarily get in on their, I don't even know how to say this, get in, like capitalize on the, on the anger mm-hmm. and just the visceral emotion that was happening at that time to tie that to public health initiatives. Mm-hmm. And and if they wanted to, I mean, they probably should have waited until after. Because then, it, cause then it's like, for people that don't necessarily agree with the people performing the, the like doing the rioting or even doing the, mm-hmm. the peaceful protesting, if it looks like an institution is taking a side, they're mm-hmm. probably going to be less likely to take a product that that institution is encouraging them to take. Too. Yeah, if yeah. you want to tie that to vaccine I, hesitancy, I I really don't know. I I I mean, we would be re- that's a really yeah, that's a multivariate analysis right there. That'd be really hard to distinguish. And also, let's be, I'll be perfectly honest. This could just be a me problem. <laughs> like that was the moment that broke me. I might just be alone on that. Honestly, <laughs> I think that I there are people probably who are already hesitant. Like plenty of people who are already hesitant to trust any government institution. And this was just further proof for them to justify that distrust. Like I said, the distrust in institutions was already a trend. It had been a trend for almost a decade at that right. point. So, right. and, and COVID and people's behavior because people be people, like they, it just accelerated it. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's. And I, I'm kind of right there with you. I mean, I I gen- generally distrust large institutions, whether they be mm-hmm. of the government or not. Right, yeah. Um, and I do tend to trust, like, do tend to distrust big personalities for that matter, such as yeah. like we were saying before we recorded, like, Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, I can only name somebody on the right. Um, that That's not good. I- Ibram Kendi. We could just use him. Sure, you know, sure. I, I invoked him earlier, yeah. I, I, d- I, don't, I don't really trust people that, like, are – that have these – platforms and they're using them to further squeeze out dollars for themselves. Mm-hmm. I just don't or think fame, that, yeah. 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 It's, it's that their their objective isn't to actually necessarily put out good ideas. Their objective is to rile people up so it pays them. Mm-hmm. And that's not somebody that you should trust because they don't really have any vested interest in the actual issue and exactly. and even if and, and it, they aren't affected by the issue like right and see that's like what, has the money i think too. what you're talking about i really just got i'm sorry to interrupt i just no, no, really no. got to hammer this in that i think that because i am 100 percent with you that bothers me a lot when when that kind of thing happens and then it suddenly felt like the cdc was doing it they were yeah. doing this. They were being Tucker Carlson, basically, yeah. to be as provocative as possible. <laughs> they, they, but like they, they were getting in on the culture war, and I was like, "Don't do it! Like you, you just you, you screwed up. You screwed yeah. the pooch. 
I mean, I got vaccinated. I mean, I'm not saying that I didn't get vaccinated because of that, because that's stupid. Yeah, I mean, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. But <laughs> I, I can say that that was probably the most, the biggest tactical blunder public health institutions probably made during yeah. the pandemic. And and in the interest of full disclosure, too, I mean, I also did. I, I've gotten three of those, and then so far, I that's I got, it. I'm trying to remember what I got, but regardless, yeah. <laughs> And I also work in clinical trials, so like we, we've been right. we've been very busy with all kinds of um, not necessarily vaccinations, but just a lot of different kinds of products that really sure. do uh, demonstrate measurable good for people who suffer from rare diseases, mm-hmm. not just viruses, like I said, but cancers and autoimmune yeah. disorders. So it's so. I do think we have to be careful not to just say like fuck it to science and not ever believe well, it's like, it, or it's not believe, so, but but trust so in it. Inv- yeah. Well, right. And it's so in vogue to be against quote unquote big pharma. I shouldn't say quote unquote. It is a thing. Big pharma is a thing. Um, and I do think there is something to how much of a joke it was that people who were totally fine and vain against big pharma suddenly became shills for them. But that doesn't mean sure. that it's it's again it's not the content of what they're saying that bothers me it's the inconsistency and you know that that is a sign of being maybe a little too like having too high of standards like basically expecting people not to be people and it's like yelling at a fish for not climbing a tree really well <laughs> like, <I laughs> you've mean, never seen a fish t- climb a tree oh man i've never seen it believe it or not yeah <laughs> but, the, uh, not but, at, but the right at the same time i also think that this is the one good thing george w bush gave us and that was the phrase a soft bigotry of low expectations <laughs> and and i am not uh well and also the footage of him getting a shoe through Adam. That was pretty great, but oh man, there was a lot of good stuff. I kind of miss was. that guy sometimes. Yeah, and now watch this drive is another really good one. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not for the good right reason though. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I just I, I think that when you, I guess what I'm saying though, and to loop this back to your original question about you know the Black Death and what I've been looking at lately, um, is the 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 institution that lost trust during that time is probably not a surprise because there was really only one institution and that was the Catholic church. And I, you know, I, I'm not one of those people necessarily that says that science is our new religion because I don't think science is. I think there is a particular brand of scientism that takes on a religious character and uh-huh. that we saw that be made very manifest during COVID. Yep. But I think that you could make the argument that public health plus the government itself was kind of the church, the Catholic church of the 21st century, if you're to make a, a as much of an apples-to-apples apples comparison with the 14th century in Europe. The point I, of bringing that up, though, is that you saw the uh, the manifestation of this, of this distrust in the church, in the institution of the day, uh, first with things like the flagellants in the 14th century. I don't know if you've, have you, uh, do you know about the flagellants? I don't know. No, enlighten. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. Well, there's debate about how truly, uh, I guess we could say evil they were. Like there's some debate about like how much, how many Jews they killed, but they, I, I'm pretty sure the evidence is in that they did kill Jews. They just didn't spearhead a lot of the pogroms that they that being the, the Catholic the church. No, the flagellants. Okay. So the flagellants were this sort of, breakaway group of just mostly everyday people but i think some like 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 clerics did get involved they were they were clerics who were particularly disillusioned with the church 
And they, I mean, a lot of times they probably were just fleeing the Black Death because their entire congregation was dying. And, or they were the only one left because priests got hit particularly hard by the disease. And to the point where I think like some – there were some parishes that were completely empty, like just completely like devoid of, of priests because they all died. Yep. But the point is these flagellants, they were people who practiced self-mortification. They, they believe that – and this is like about a year into the Black Death, give or take. They – they were just – it was apparent that whatever they were doing, whatever the church was doing wasn't working because really in the 14th century, your only option was pray really hard and stay away from everybody. Uh, and like that was that was really the only choice there. And when the most godly among them, the priests in other words, were dying too, it was pretty obvious something wasn't working. Now, we know with hindsight what that was and that's just because a bacteria doesn't care how much you pray. Yeah. But – the flagellants saw this as a failure of the church. So what they did was they – in private but mostly in public where it was most significant, they went from town to town whipping themselves with salices, which dug chunks of flesh out of themselves to basically invoke the suffering of Christ. It was their way of uh, of, of, of trying to um, – appease a god that had essentially abandoned them. It was like saying, look, no, 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 we really understand the message you're trying to tell us with this pestilence that th- that like we we fucked up. <laughs> like the people are are sinful. We need to fix this. <laughs> we like um, pain. Please come back. Well, yeah, and there was actually there was a a very erotic element to it in the sense that there was a it, it's unmistakable when you read the the accounts from the time. People were titillated by what they were watching because all of these men, because it was always men, they would strip naked and whip themselves until bleeding, and like the and a, a crowd would gather to watch. It was a very here's another really funny thing that's going to just sound kind of obvious. It was very German. <laughs> it started. <laughs> it had happened in Italy before uh, a while before, but it was a German phenomenon. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so yeah, so basically the flagellants though, they were a breakaway sect. And it got to the point where even though the Pope in Avignon, I believe it was Clement the Sixth, he was so he he was in it, he was in on it at first because he was like, Oh, okay, this is just extreme expressions of faith. This is good. This is good. This might appease God. And then it became clear that they were basically acting outside the law. They were killing a lot of Jews, for example, like I was saying. Though, again, there is evidence that some of the worst pogroms that occurred in 14th century Europe, in Germany particularly, were actually spurred on by local governments who just didn't like the Jews and or had bought into the idea that the Jews caused the plague, which they obviously didn't. Right. Uh, but regardless, the – uh, the Pope ended up just being so angry that he denounced the flagellants for what they were doing, and they basically faded into the background. And flagellantism still exists today. Like people do it in the Philippines and in Spain, in particular. Not as extreme as they did during the Black Death, but it's still a practice, you know, done today. But regardless, <laughs> the, the the flagellants disappeared, and then the Black Death continued afterward. And then by the time the plague was over like essentially over, like it was sort of like you couldn't put the genie back in the bottle because the papacy had been revealed to be ineffective at doing anything except stopping people from expressing their faith in a personalized way. And while it's a mistake to look at the Black Death as the cause of the Reformation, 
and everything, all the chaos that came out of that, it's also a mistake to think that it didn't set the groundwork for it. Sure. So basically what I'm saying is we should probably buckle up because right. and we might not even witness like the the consequences of COVID-19's disruption, for, the social couple, consequences for years. Really. We, it might we might not even be alive, man. I mean, yeah. if we are, if we're old, we'll have to reconvene to do a special podcast and be like, <laughs> "See, I told you so." <laughs> or I could or you or I could just be like, "I was wrong. Everything's fine. I don't know." Point is though, when you have a disruption of public trust in your biggest institutions at that level, that fundamentally, like you, you are really you're looking down the barrel of a very uncertain future. We yeah. don't know what that's going to do. Maybe nothing will happen. Maybe we are a stable enough society that it won't be an issue. But I, I just don't see it. I, I see like I see severe problems for uh, our institutions going forward. That's super interesting because, of course, back back in the 14th century, they they didn't have the communication down, nor right. did they have any idea scientifically of what was going on. Mm-hmm. This might be super obvious, but of <laughs> no, course no, now we only that. have you know now we only have one of those things. We know exactly what um, we know exactly what a virus is, how it mm-hmm. how it behaves. I mean, shoot, we can even quickly get its genomic sequence and we can even treat it or even vaccinate against it. But we just well, like cannot. COVID was like, it was sequenced like very like early. The, if like I... the 12th day into the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, it was sequenced the next day. <laughs> well, no, yeah, I mean, I guess I think I've researched this before. Sure. It was sequenced at first by, um, by, I want to be more specific than saying the Chinese, but I cannot think of. It, I believe it was a Chinese scientist who sequenced it. Yeah, I think except he, they didn't, didn't he die of COVID too. It was so the 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 doc, You're probably thinking of um, Doctor Lee. Um, I can't say his name. Wei Liang. Okay. The optom- he, he was the one who died of COVID. Yeah, he was an ophthalmologist. Okay. That um, I actually have a podcast episode up about this on my in my original show that I started in 2019. Oh, cool. But, uh, he, um, yeah, he, he died of COVID. He was an optometrist or not an optometrist, ophthalmologist. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was one of the first people to get COVID and he was talking about it on, um, what is that app? WeChat. Yes. WeChat. Yeah. And telling his friends that he had been seeing all these, like, all these patients with this novel virus that just like, it wasn't in tests. It wasn't coming up as anything. Mm-hmm. He was telling his buddies about it on WeChat and they were encouraging him to not talk about it because the yeah. government was going to, uh, the government was going to see this. And, and then sure enough. <laughs> yeah. And then he, he died of, he died of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I was thinking – so I don't think he was the one that did the sequence, but some other Chinese institution yeah. or person sequenced COVID-19. But the Chinese government was holding back a lot of the initial data that was coming out, mm-hmm. even though the World Health Organization had requested it. I mean this is just like another problem with authoritarian regimes is they can just do 
whatever they want, even in a crisis. There's no yeah, and then do and then later on do the bidding. Of, yeah, of basically, like like the, the, when the institutions seem captured by an authoritarian regime overseas, there's another reason for people are just going to be like, okay, well, why do I trust you anymore? Exactly. I mean, I but of course, like we, I think people would probably put. This might be a huge statement. People would probably Americans would probably put more. <laughs> trust in the CDC than they would in the China and the Chinese communist party. I don't know if that's right. a controversial thing. To say. I don't <laughs> to think say. it is. I don't think it, I mean, there, there might be a couple tankies out there who disagree with you, <laughs> even though they're completely wrong because China is not a communist country. They had like a spasm of communism for like a couple decades. Now it's basically <laughs> ethno fascism over there. <laughs> um, but no, we couldn't get them. I, it had to be sequenced, I think separately mm-hmm. by, uh, more Western science. We got to get multiple. You, you got to get multiple data inputs. I mean, you can't yeah, just you go do. by one thing. I mean, yeah. it has, you have to double and triple and quadruple check your work when you're conducting science. I mean, that's exactly. again. That's why I make the distinction between scientism and science is that science is never done. As no. I'm sure, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. I'm sure, but I'm just saying, like, that it's never done. You're, not, and that's another reason why I think the whole racism is a public health threat kind of thing bothered me because I'm thinking. I think we can minimize racism, even though I think it is an inevitable feature of human nature. Uh-huh. To call I, it a I, public I, health yeah. threat makes it sound like it's something scientific, which already alarm bells are going off in my head when I hear the words science and racism in the same sentence <laughs> for <laughs> obvious reasons. Uh, but that's what I'm saying is that like science is never settled. So maybe in the sense that like saying that racism will never be settled is more realistic because like I just said, I think it is an aspect of human nature. I think that's the the worst message to send to people though about sure. racism. Sure. You, you should never say it's never going to be settled because then you're just going to make people distrust each other based on race at that point. You, I mean, you could use that term too to justify your distrust in institutions or even right. a, a product, in this case, a COVID-19 vaccine. You could somebody could tell you, well, this is perfectly safe, and you could retort with, well, I mean, science is never settled. It's only been two, three years since right. this vaccine's been out. We don't know the long term effects on the mm-hmm. human body of what mRNA vaccines do. Which I think, I don't know, that's a fair point. If you if you want to. If you don't want to take the risk, I mean, that's your prerogative. Right. And that's my whole thing. And I think that that's why the people who are very good at threading that subtle needle of being against things like mandates or, you know, the more controversial uh, vaccine passports, quote unquote, which Canada has right now. Like, I I think you can – it just boggled my mind, but it also didn't at that point because at that point it was very obvious to me that we were living in the midst of, you know – mass hysteria like i was what we were saying both saying earlier um but it was also just kind of like how can people not see the difference between someone who is against a vaccine with no evidence and selectively saying the science isn't settled when they wouldn't otherwise have said that and someone who's just saying <laughs> somebody okay, who's never uttered the word science in their entire life yeah before. they think that you they, they they don't even know what's they don't know they probably couldn't list the scientific like, methods yeah i was literally like, just about to say that. yeah like they don't know i mean they they don't like the people who say hypothesis and theory interchangeably, which yeah, is right. that's such an elitist thing for me to say because I've also done that too. It's hypocritical as well, but it's still true. I mean, there's a big difference between those things in the context yeah, of science. But for sure. what I was trying to say is that the people who are very much in favor of protesting 
vaccine uh, mandates and passports, they're making a political argument. They're not talking about vaccines, aka evil or anything like that. They've unfortunately a lot of them have turned into that. But I, I think there's nothing wrong with politically protesting or ideologically protesting against measures by a government that even if they're in the interest of public health are basically authoritarianism. Like I, I think that there is a very big distinction between protesting those two things. And again, unfortunately, they got conflated by the people who didn't want to listen to them. And then a lot of the people who were against the mandates have just kind of become outright anti-vaxxers as well because so they're just like, fine, screw it. I'm just going to – I'll just be an anti-vaxxer in general because it's easier to communicate my distrust in the institution. Yeah. And that, I mean I was going to say like how how many of those people do you think either got vaccinated or were vaccinated and still – we're saying no. I'm against the mandate. I'm I'm sure I've, there are people out there. I've like wondered that. that. I'm very curious how many how many like secret vaxxed there are. You know what I mean? Yeah. I bet there's a few. I bet some of the, I I'm bet there sure. are some of the most vociferous voices out there are probably secretly vaccinated. I I I don't doubt it. Honestly, yeah. if you can think of it, it exists. Yeah, it's it's rule thirty four of politics. <laughs> well, it's not quite like that, but yeah, maybe not. But it's more like I don't know, some. If you, if you, I don't know, man. I, I've talked to Kristaps about this, but you know, I wouldn't have. I, you know, you. I think that does kind of apply, especially when you start looking at people like Alexander Dugan. It's like if you can think of national Bolshevism as an idea, just as a as a lark, but then you find out it's actually a thing, and their flag is a Nazi flag, but with a hammer and sickle in the middle of it. Oh, it's like anything is possible when you those, learn about national Bolshevism. <laughs> those Twitter, not just Twitter, but those like intersections of ideology that I would never have thought existed are so right. mind boggling to me. Like some, like I had somebody, I, I, I don't remember who I, I wouldn't even tell you if I could just <laughs> to keep them anonymous, but I had somebody like a post of mine on Twitter and like, I'm always curious about people's accounts and it's sure. somebody that like purports to be like a, a MAGA Stalinist. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Ma MAGA communist. That's a what thing. What yeah. the fuck is happening right now? Um, well, the thing is, there's, there's, there, there is one guy that I can cite who kind of helped coin the MAGA communist term, and I think I referenced him in our talk with Chris Jobs. It's this guy uh, Jackson Hinkle who is ostensibly a communist, but he supports like, like MAGA Americans because he's trying to make a class argument. The thing is, though. If you look at his social media and actually look at what he's saying or listen to his debates with figures like Destiny, uh, the streamer, okay. it's be pretty clear the guy is just a garden variety traditionalist conservative. He's not a communist at all. Yeah, it's it's I mean, he's like fucking sharing selfies of him listening to Gregorian chants in a steam room. Like, come on, dude, you're a fucking yeah. traditionalist. <laughs> just own up to it. So, yeah. I mean, and also he's he's lionizing Alexander Dugan's daughter, which like, come on, <laughs> like just come on. We're getting we're getting way too deep into the weeds with with weird Twitter personalities and obscure Russian politics here. We should save that for when we talk to Chris Jobs. I yeah, think. we should. I just I, I don't know. I had yeah. to say I had to say something because it was sure. just so bizarre. Of course, I check Twitter like like so, so, I have a horrible habit of 
checking social media first thing when I wake up, which you should never mm-hmm. do, kids. Uh, nope. nope. Um, but, you should uh, check your email, but that's it. <laughs> yeah. But I do that. And then, of course, like while I'm half asleep, I'm like, what the hell am I looking at? Right <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like this well, guy, this guy had like pictures of um, like these memes of like Ron Swanson with pictures of Stalin, like in his desk or on an easel. And I was just like, okay, like Ron Swanson multiple times says he's uh-huh. against communism in yeah. like there's no way yeah yeah these two things are not the same well it, it's and well you know what this actually does potentially tie into like what we were talking about a little bit ago about the decay of institutional trust and i think it's actually quite okay maybe i'm overstating this but i i'm you know i don't give a shit i do it all the time anyway <laughs> uh it MAGA communism, quote unquote, and all these weird fringe ideologies gaining purchase. Again, that was already kind of happening before COVID happened, but then COVID accelerated it. For sure. And you're starting to see basically the effects of a pandemic on people's sociopolitical concerns. Yeah. And that's why you start seeing very weird things. Like people are throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. MAGA communism is probably not going to stick. It's just no. there's too many contradictions and silliness that we were just now laughing at. But there is a – I mean I did a podcast with my aforementioned friend CJ, the Dangerous History Podcast, where we talked about America's past ideological realignments – like you you kind of had the first big realignment with Andrew Jackson where he was actually kind of if you look at the stuff said about him back in the you know 1820s mm-hmm. and even before he was a prototype for Trump in a way he was probably the original Donald Trump not this obscure Irish dude I did a podcast about many moons ago but the, uh, but Andrew Jackson was a realignment into uh you know sort of like "Quote unquote lowbrow politics," sure. and that's like how the Democrats and the Republican that led to how the Democrats and Republicans became who they were in the 19th century. Then you have Woodrow Wilson basically realigning Democrats into the progressive "quote unquote" monster of that exists to this day in a lot of ways. A, a lot of Wilson's vibe, to use like a vague term, but also a lot of his concerns. They, 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 like on the broadest sense, are basically have held steady for over a hundred years at this point. And then Donald Trump happened, and he kind of represented a realignment. I think not with him himself because he was just an obvious con man who didn't give a shit about politics at all. He just wanted yeah. to win. But you see a lot of very out there, you know, people in the Republican Party that could be signaling a shift. Now, I don't think the GOP establishment would allow for that. But my point is just that I think that when you have like a pre-existing trend of ideological realignment, that's another thing that's going to get accelerated by a pandemic like COVID. So again, like the institutional trust thing is a part that I just kind of cringe thinking about what that's going to result in because it probably will be a bunch of quote unquote alternative institutions that come out of that. And that could be a good thing. It's never bad to have more voices at the table, but it depends on how they're formed. You know, like, and also, alternative institutions always have costs. I mean, it's it's that um, it's that Thomas Sowell quote about how there's it's like there's no such thing as solutions, only trade offs. So the and I'm butchering that quote, I'm sure, but the the, the trade off of the Reformation, which I think a lot of people. I mean, I don't think there would be an America without a Reformation, probably, because it, individ- it, it, it pushed individualism into the forefront and gave us things like the Enlightenment in a lot of ways. And I think that 
the 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 personal relationship with God that someone might have. I mean, I'm an atheist, but I, I understand the appeal of 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 uh, believing in God, especially through the lens of something like deism, which again only would have existed because of Protestantism, because Protestantism basically cut out the middleman of the clergy, but created its own clergy, obviously, as time went on. The point being, though, is that the trade-off of personalizing one's relationship with God and distrusting the authority of the Catholic Church was you ended up with things like the Siege of Munster and the Anabaptist Revolution, which Dan Carlin talked about in my favorite episode of Hardcore History, Prophets of Doom. If people haven't heard that, they should just go buy that episode. It's an incredible story. And he raises a very provocative question, which he says, Protestantism and the spread of this kind of chaos was only possible because of the printing press and people becoming more literate. And when you think about the like the cost of you know the the religious schism between the Catholic Church and the Protestants, it kind of calls into question: Was this these positive changes like literacy and so forth? Was it worth it? And then I think what usually at least how I end up coming down on those kind of questions is it's not for me to say because it happened and it's not you know up for debate in that sense, but. Ethically, it does make you wonder like what those benefits that we call benefits now, what those costs were going to be. I mean, there was the French wars of religion in the same debt in the same century as the Reformation, and those were horrible. Like Daniele Bellelli did a series on that that people should check out. It's it's amazing and it's a nightmare. <laughs> so I I just I look at these events. Uh, that were that wouldn't have happened without the Reformation, which wouldn't have happened without the Black Death. And I think about how that's like how wh- what equivalent manifestation are we going to see after COVID? Now, COVID might not have been as big of a deal because of just not that not as many people dying, but I find that hard to believe when it's paired with all of this other stuff that existed before. Like that worries me. I, I, it's and maybe I'm just naturally a warrior, uh, but I, I think we are in for alternative institutions causing some pretty profound disruptions. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm being too cynical. I don't know. Or pessimistic. <laughs> it's been known to, it's been said. <laughs> <laughs> now with, with COVID, I, I remember in your episode about the professional ma- managerial class, it seems oh, right, like the- you were focused more on those sorts of people or, or that sort of group as an institution in a, in a corporate setting. Mm-hmm. Now, how does, how does that look like? Do you think, um, along think with these, these changes that you were just describing okay. coming out of COVID? Well, uh, I think that because the professional managerial class, such as it is, is that I, I think that they, represent what the people who are going to create the counter institutions, the alternative institutions, and the people who distrust institutions in general, they're going to be those who get blamed because they're the ones who are the enforcers, essentially, of the uh, of the orthodoxy that exists within corporations. Sure. And I, and I think that you could maybe, if you wanted to do a Black Death comparison, you could maybe look at them as like the priests of the Catholic Church that like everyone abandoned, who didn't want anything to do with, uh, or you know, fill in the blank with whatever you want to call it. It probably in the, in the actual state of war, they were the ones who were killed. So, but we're not in a state of war. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I think if you want to work them into the discussion of the decay of institutional trust, the professional managerial class is the target. 
of of that decayed trust like whether people are saying it out loud or not and the reason why i would actually if if we really did descend into something akin to a revolution or civil conflict which i don't think we will because the the lines are not clear geographically i think it's more likely that if there's like the worst case scenario for America, I think, is that we would descend into something akin to the troubles in Ireland in the 1980s, which is not good. Don't get me wrong. But I think that that's more what it would look like. But the people, though, who are invaded against the most by the most radical among us are the professional managerial class. Both leftists and people on the right, like right wing populists, mm-hmm. speak very negatively of them. Because they are ultimately a, a sort of parasitic class that both disrupts capitalism in a lot of ways and also enforces social norms that not everyone agrees with. Sure. And I think that when you when you have that kind of um, that kind of status and it becomes increasingly known, that's going to make you a target, which I guess the good news is, is if you want to put it in air quotes, is that there's not really like a specific like racial or gender makeup of it. So it wouldn't be a hate crime in the traditional sense, but it would be a pretty bad time to be a member of the PMC if, if you know, we got hit with the, the American version of the troubles. That's all I'm saying. I know you already – went over this in your episode about the PMC, but can, Mm. for this, can you define what the PMC is and give an example and then maybe name a a specific person if you feel like that's okay. A specific person. That's the thing. That's the thing. There isn't really, I mean, this is why I think it's fair for someone to be skeptical of PMC talk in general, because and this is always a sign of you know convenience to say that the PMC is essentially like it, it is a class. There's no one specific. There's no head PMC or, or anything like that. Sure. The the best way to describe the professional managerial class, uh, as it was originally defined by Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, this um, I think she was like a she was like a socialist sociologist. I want to say or political scientist and. Uh, from like the 70s. She actually just died last September, I think. Um, but she basically described, I mean, to keep it in, in simplest terms possible, they're middle management, like white collar workers in a, in a corporation. Okay. But they also work in government, of course, too. Of course. They're the people who manage companies, whereas the founders of companies, like, for example, uh, I don't want to use Steve Jobs as an example because he was a prick, but that's the best I could. Uh, Elon Musk. I, I, I knew you were going to say Elon. I was waiting for you to. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's funny because I'm not even a fanboy of his. I think he's Twitter poisoned. <laughs> I think he's very cringe. <laughs> but um, but I know what you mean. Somebody that somebody entrepreneurial that founds a company, right? Th- those people are more akin to artists. Like if you if I may be so bold, like you and I. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know if I call myself. A, I well, regardless. Uh, oh, actually, no, I can name a name, or well, actually, can I? Because I don't remember her name. Um. You know what? I'm going to look her up. Uh, but, I, well, regardless, an example of someone who is a professional managerial class member was the head of trust and safety over at Twitter, that woman who was on Rogan's podcast years ago with um, uh, uh, with Jack Murphy – or not Jack Murphy. <laughs> That's a different guy. No, uh, Jack Dorsey. Excuse me. Um, and uh, her name was like v- v- uh, Vijay Gotti, I think. Uh, I, I, I gotta look it up. 
Yeah. Oh, Vijaya Gotti. That's that's her name. She is an example of a member of the PMC. She didn't make the company. She really didn't have anything to do with the company being what made people like Twitter. She just basically instituted the rules. And as we've seen from things like the Twitter files, those rules were not applied equally and they were applied in kind of like a roughshod way, yep. but still within a very, uh, very obvious system. It was very systemic. I think when people talk, for example, about systemic racism in the police, for example, I would imagine you could probably trace however you define systemic racism to whatever their equivalent of the PMC is, which would probably be police unions. I, basically, the PMC is who keeps things running. So it would be a mistake to say that we shouldn't have a managerial class. Obviously, companies wouldn't function without them. But I think making them professions that people aim to do is it has as an effect essentially created people who see the value and power for its own sake because you don't become rich working as a middle manager. I mean, I I don't know how many – have you ever worked in middle management before? Because I have not. I have not either. I can think of people in middle management. <laughs> yeah, you you always everyone knows who you're talking about. And again, like I, you know, I don't have much love for them as I understand them. But I'm also, and this is why I kind of referenced like why they are they should probably be worried as as like targets if something truly horrible started happening in the United States. I'm saying that with full knowledge, and even though I don't like them. They are kind of they're vague enough to be some their existence is vague and unofficial enough that it makes that that it creates a very dangerous situation for someone who uh, might work in management but doesn't represent like that kind of gross anti-capitalist fascistic dogma that drives most uh, stakeholder capitalists, which is what the episode I w- I did was talking about is that it was more similar because. People like to focus on how stakeholder capitalism, when they can actually identify the term, they I, I've just seen nothing. The only people talking about it are right wingers, and they keep saying it's just Marxism, it's just communism. No, it's not. If it was Marxism or communism, that would be a suicide for a company to engage in that. It's a form of fascism. It's I mean, and that I don't even like using that word because I think the only fascists are the ones in Italy in the 1920s and 1940s. Like they don't, it's not the same. But it's it's authoritarian is what it is. Sure. So, so anyway, I, I got sidetracked there. But my point is just that I think that the people who make up the PMC or just the managerial class in general uh, are are the ones who basically keep the machine going. And the problem is the machine has been going a very particular way since probably the Great Recession. And that is to, at least in corporate culture, to make it impossible to have the conversation about account, financial accountability which is what Occupy Wall Street was all about. That that was like a very significant moment for them because they realized holy shit the the entire country's turning on us and you know maybe they kind of deserved it because they got bailed out. And I'm not debating whether or not the bailouts were a good idea or not. I'm just saying that it was a very bad look for them and they were not popular. So as soon as something like Black Lives Matter comes out of the woodwork, even though the people in the organization call themselves trained Marxists, which they clearly are not, uh, they like the, you have no. I can't imagine how excited corporate America got when they realized that they could embrace supposedly radical politics while still maintaining their bottom line and even making it go a little higher. 
So it, and that's really what I think the core of the problem of the PMC is because the PMC is enforcing that. And I think the fact that they seek their power for its own sake, because they're not going to get rich being a manager is what makes it so disturbing to me. See, this is the interesting thing because somebody with that kind of personality, I I don't know if they'd necessarily want to like stay in that position, right? Because they might want to get to a higher position where they. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. that kind of goes into one of my one of my questions is. So I see what you're saying about PMCs being middle management, Mm -hmm. but wouldn't they also be like CEOs of companies? So for so for example, you said that the founders are more like artists. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. not necessarily all artists, but take somebody like, like Walt Disney, for example, not <laughs> yeah, just sure. because he was an artist, but because he founded the company he did, but the CEOs after him, like Michael Eisner, I mean, they're not necessarily artists. These are people that know how to run a business. Mm-hmm. Are they, yeah, I would you, say they are also more like PMCs, but they're certainly not middle managers. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I would say that the CEO, you know, like pretty much people who run the company, not make the company. Like I think the founder and CEO is usually different because they have that sort of artist instinct in them. Um, but I, I think you're right that they, that you could probably make the case that CEOs, at least some CEOs are merely people from the PMC who work their way to the top. I mean, Bob Iger comes to mind, you know, of Disney, speaking of which, I mean, uh, but, but yeah, my, my point is that I, I think that the reason, well, the reason why you don't see more CEOs doing this is because there's only so many CEOs, but yeah. I, I think that the, the other thing that needs to be remembered is that you can wield a lot of power in middle management in a, within a company, and you can be totally fine with that without going up the ladder if you will, because not everybody has ambition to be the boss of bosses. They just sure. want to be a boss of some group Somebody. of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's like the most ambitious among them will probably become CEOs eventually, but they won't make anything. They won't create anything. They'll just draft policy at best. And I, I think that's what makes the PMC. It, it was a very weird thing for me the more I was learning about it because I was like, it was shaking loose a very cynical view I had for a very long time that everybody just does something for money, that money is the prime motivator. And I think we were talking earlier about this, that there are people who just do it for the money and clearly not the ideas behind it. Uh, you know, looking at you, Fox news, uh, but, uh, like, I, I think that the, I, I think that like there, despite that being true, a lot of the time, I think that there, it really shook me to realize that there are people out there who, because they're never going to be rich, they've basically come, come to grips with that. Yep. And they've come to grips with that by realizing how much power they actually wield within a company. They might look at it or justify it in various ways, like calling it responsibility or something like that. But really what they're getting off on is the power that they wield while they also get to take home a, a decent paycheck at the same time. Cause they might not get rich, but they're going to be comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just a, it, it, it is doing something that I try not to do very much, which is mind reading, but it also is just sort of a way to, I think, look at how, how structures are managed a lot of the time and when the management becomes uh, sort of 
like like their their self interest is made manifest in the policies they put out sure. because it really only enriches them in the sense of how much power they get and that's sort of why I made the comparison as possibly unnecessarily edgy as it was uh, to Nazism but that's how the Nazi you know bureaucracy functioned it was a lot of people not trying to get rich but just trying to one up each other and become you know more powerful within the organizations and there was a lot of that that's how Heinrich Himmler became you know the head of the SS ultimately sure. there's a lot of power jockeying and you know all, honestly it's like yeah it's provocative to bring up the Nazis but I also only did it because they're really the only authoritarians I know about that much about at least <laughs> I'm sure you can make the case that stuff like that was happening in the Soviet Union but I I don't know I don't know enough about Soviet history <laughs> I defer to you on that, actually. Stalin, I think, was, you could argue, was a member of the PMC at that time. Of Soviet or at Russia. Least, or pre-Soviet yeah, Russia, right? Well, no, yeah. during Soviet Russia, during too. During Soviet Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of, the, of the Bolshevik, you know, PMC. The Bolshevik whatever, PMC. <laughs> whatever that looks like. Yeah, um, yeah. But I guess this is kind of like, I don't know if this is a question or merely just a comment. From, from my point of view, to me, it seems like the contemporary American... PMC, it doesn't seem that dangerous because mm. whereas they are yes men and they may be powerful, they're powerful in a very limited way inside mm-hmm. the institution of corporations or government. But that's not to say that y- you will have, like Stalin, at least one individual in the PMC that has greater ambition that actually wants to take the reins of the institution and steer it in a way that is abhorrent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, and the thing is, and I have said this actually, in fact, I believe I said this to, well, I said it in my podcast about, uh, that I called stakeholder Nazism about the PMC is that I, I made it a point and I don't normally do this because I know people don't like really being preached to, but I was like, look, I'm laying out all this stuff. That's basically a bunch of complaining. I need to offer some form of solutions to things like that. And I think the good news is about the American PMC, as detestable as they are in so many ways, is that you don't we don't really have to worry about waiting till we have a troubles-like situation where they get targets painted on them because I don't want them to die. Like that's crazy. I, I wouldn't want that either. I like the fact that there is a way to sort of defang them of the power that they obviously seek a lot of them, and that's to just not participate in those yeah. things. As long as we can vote with our dollars. We are free. Like that, I think people need to remember that more often is that the problem isn't when there's bad ideology circulating everywhere, which there is. I think there objectively is. And it's like I was saying, been accelerated by a pandemic because that's just what pandemics do. That's what calamities do. But I think the good news is we can do stuff about it in our personal lives. We don't have to succumb to that. We can. I think the, the again, like I was saying, like the problem isn't when there's bad ideology circling around. The the problem is when you can't avoid them. And the thing is, it's not that hard to avoid this shit. And also, those of us who are very online podcasters and so forth, we're exposed to this stuff a lot more often. So it is possible to overstate the case. I don't think it's overstating it to say that the PMC represents a, a noxious form of power. Uh, in, in corporate America, particularly, but also in the state. But I, I, I also think that it thankfully isn't something that we have to live with. And even more to the point, is not something that can avoid market forces. Now, I'm going to sound like a total, like, like hardcore Ayn Rand libertarian type, but 
I really do think that when something is subject to mar- market forces, it is not that dangerous. Like something like an like a like an ideology, for example. Like people sure. complain about wokeness in Hollywood a lot these days, and they're right to do so. It is very antithetical to good art most of the time. Uh, most of the time, because there are some movies that people would call woke that I would say are actually pretty good. Like um, uh, 2016's Moonlight comes to mind. That was a good movie. Or, but regardless, the point is, if the ideology sucks and you're getting crap like the the Velma show on HBO, <laughs> which somehow got renewed for a second season, but I think it's because people hate watched it. Honestly, <laughs> um, I didn't. I didn't but- even waste my time. And that's the solution right there. You just, you just, it's actually quite insulting to the people that it's trying to pop, prop up. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like it, it's, well, I've had this conversation multiple times with people about Hollywood, and I think Hollywood is a morally corrupt, like on every level, essentially rogue state within the United States borders. But, uh, I mean, that's, that's a whole other conversation uh, involving my cynicism involving Hollywood. But if people want to know why, like how I feel about Hollywood, they should listen to my, uh, I think it's my fourth and fifth episodes, uh, The Great Hollywood Cover-Up, which if you think Hollywood is corrupt now, like in the era of, you know, Me Too, for example, <laughs> just, just go back a hundred years when they literally covered up the murder of a director. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, the, the, the thing is though, I, I always say that like, even though Hollywood essentially has kind of a monopoly on a certain form of entertainment, which they don't, I think you can you you can consume visual media for free online at this point. So I don't think I think that if there was a monopoly, it's been broken. But they are very monolithic in how they present themselves, but the way they present themselves is not fixed and it's not going to cause any damage in the long term because they are going to shift with the times. And if you know enough Gen Z people, they really love to make fun of how woke millennials act and the things they say. They have their own issues. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying, when stuff is driven by taste, it's therefore driven by the. It's th- therefore subject to the market. The market does correct itself when it comes to cultural things, and and especially in America, where if you if Americans feel like they're being preached to and they're being told things that they don't believe in and they don't know why anyone will believe them they're going to say stop propagandizing me or i'm going to go find something else to watch and then it usually changes i i don't know if this was the cause of it but i'm a, i'm just going to out myself as a big star trek nerd the first two seasons of star trek picard were complete crap and they pushed a lot of really weird politics that even though Star Trek has always been very political and quote unquote progressive, it was just so out of touch with how Star Trek used to do politics, which was they very had subtle. the first interracial kiss on TV. They did, yeah, they yeah. did, and it was also a, in retrospect, it's kind of like, well, if I remember the episode right, Kirk and Uhura kiss against their will, which was, I think that was a clever way to get around like censorship, though I would imagine. Interesting. Matt, uh, yeah, I mean, but but yeah, well, and also Next Generation had the first, I think, first ever like television uh, or first ever depiction of uh, gender dysphoria on television or something. It was it was an episode where Riker fell in love with a, I think, a third gendered species or something. I, I don't remember it. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, they're very progressive in that sense. But just the way the the sort of like dated and forced way they did politics in the first two seasons of Star Trek Picard just felt so antithetical to Star Trek, among a lot of other things. And then season three has started, 
and I posted this on Twitter. You might have seen it. The third episode of this third season is the best Star Trek related thing I have seen since 1999 or 1998, whenever <laughs> DS9. I think I did it. see that tweet. Yeah, and it's like I have no problem admitting I like Star Trek. Star Trek's awesome, but <laughs> yeah. But the, the the thing is that there is such a weirdly abrupt qualitative turnaround with this show that it says to me that. Even though people are saying, oh, they're just – well, I don't know if people are saying this, but I can imagine someone would say that they're just caving to like toxic fan pressure, to which I'd say, well, then that's really bad because that means the toxic fans have a point <laughs> So about how bad your show was. So the um, – but the, the, the fact is I think they probably were looking at numbers. They were probably looking at reviews, including from the so-called toxic fandom, and they were like, look – People aren't going to like this if we keep doing what's been getting done with this show. Let's do something new. And then they did. And now it's so far very, very good. I, and it's, I know it's anecdotal, but that's just what I'm saying is that I think that these these kinds of changes uh, do come about – can come about naturally just from people just losing interest in them. So that's why I think the PMC in America at least, as toxic as they can be – is I think you're right, is not as dangerous as they might seem. Because if the bosses say, look, we are hemorrhaging money, we need to stop doing X, Y, and Z that you know might have to have to do with like divisive politicking, they will change. And there's and no I, shortage of data on that. I mean, you could go on yeah. YouTube and find all kinds of YouTubers com- complaining or whatever about wokeness in uh-huh. media. It's like a whole genre. It, yeah, and it's lucrative as hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think it's fine to call out that stuff. It's, it's, but it's also like you know, it's it's repetitive, and it also gets to the point where you're just sort of like, yeah, I I, I know it's bad. Like, can you make an alternative? Then you have the good news is you have someone like um, I don't really follow him that much, but my friend CJ cued me into him, uh, Eric July, uh, who. It's like a comic guy. Like he, he, he's like a nerd culture critic. He's an anarcho-capitalist. He's very. Um, he, he makes a lot of uh, political arguments in that vein. And he w- and I. I do not read comic books. I know nothing about the comics industry. But based on what people, yeah. So I mean, we're talking. I'm telling tales out of school here. But the point is, what he did was he was noticing all these problems of uh, woke comic book producers or something. So he put his money where his mouth was and he started his own comic publishing house and is – I think it's – um, it only has one uh, series now and it's his series. Um, I forgot what it's called. But uh, yeah, he – what I'm saying my, – my point is just that he said, fine, I don't like what's happening here. So I'm going to reach out to my fans, ask for funding, direct funding and do my own thing that is not like this and just tell a good story. And there are people who have criticized it because it was motivated by not liking a particular ideology, but I don't think that matters. He's creating an alternative space. It kind of goes to what we were talking about, about alternative institutions. And I think when you're talking about comic books, who gives a shit? It's just comic books. But it does get into dicier territory when you're talking about things as fundamental as, say, religion after the Black Death or as fundamental as public health after COVID. No, I I hear you. I, I do, um, do want to pose one more one more question to you. I mean, not, not really about just to circle back to COVID since you just mentioned it. What do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on the, this a little bit more legitimacy, I guess, to the lab leak theory? Oh boy. (laughs) And I, and I, and I, I, yeah, 
<laughs> I, uh, I well, think um, that's about it. I did want to. I did kind of want to have a follow up question to that too. Is if the lab leak theory turns out to definitively and demonstrably be true, mm-hmm. is it possible that maybe the Spanish flu could have also been man man made? <laughs> Pandemics probably yeah. are natural phenomena, mm-hmm. but I could also see an instance where because the Germans were getting desperate in the mm. first world war that they cooked up their own, their own virus and released it on the battlefield. Well, here's the thing. Uh, if we're just going to play with fun speculations here, you don't need advanced technology to create a bioweapon because even though people were throwing plague bodies behind castles yeah yes that was um that was that for a long time that was a narrative of how the black death spread to europe was the um the forces of the golden horde under janabeg khan were tossing they they had a plague outbreak in their you know in their army camp so as a sort of one-two punch to get rid of the plague bodies because it was making more people sick they hurled the plague bodies into the port city of kaffa and then from there because it was a genoese port the Genoese sailors who caught the plague brought it back to Italy proper to Europe, and that's how it spread. Now we know now that the plague that was that did happen, and the the Mongol horde did launch plague bodies. It was the most devastating bioweapon attack probably of all time, whether they knew it or not. But the thing is, we know now that the plague spread through multiple vectors because that's just how disease works. It doesn't just come from one thing. Uh, but regardless, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. And you, you got my point there, which is that you don't need advanced technology to do that. And from what we know of the Spanish flu of H1N1 was uh, that – the, the common narrative is that it came from America, came from Kansas, which is possible. I, it obviously was a real vector. But there, I in my first pandemic episode, I talked about how uh, there were other instances of outbreaks in other parts of the world of what was most likely, if not almost certainly, earlier at least strains of H1N1, and they happened before Camp Funston in Kansas. Like for example, uh, there was the uh, the Chinese outbreaks that were studied extensively at the time. And that one's a little vaguer because you couldn't really prove like what was and what wasn't uh, a flu infection, not only because you couldn't see viruses yet because we didn't have the, the, the right microscope for that for another couple of decades, I think. But also because at that time, there was a lot of superstition in China about dissecting corpses. Amer- uh, not America, but um, the United um, I keep wanting to say United States. Uh, no, uh, Europe had that same exact problem during the Black Death. So understanding what was happening was a lot harder. But there was also evidence, though, found, and it was through genetic analysis. And this is a lot of correlation possibly being used as causation. I'll admit that. But they found what looked like – it was among many viruses. Because here's the funny thing. Waterfowl carry huge amounts – of, vi- of flu viruses oh, in their yeah. stomachs. Birds it's crazy. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. Same and they, bats. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that's why it's not unreasonable to say that it was natural and zoonotic, but the evidence seems to be that what happened with H1N1 in 19, it was around 1916 when people started falling sick on the French lines, is that they were near a waterway where a lot of these ducks were living, a lot of waterfowl. And this is where they found a lot of the, and in modern times, they found a lot of, you know, of 
a virus uh, genetic material within these ducks. And these ducks would fly over the the French lines, which are already not very good in terms of um, you know uh, hygiene at that point yep. in the war. Yep. And they were shitting on them, to be put put it bluntly. And it was likely causing a lot of outbreaks of disease. And you know, then you just combine all the other factors of like how of not to mention how and, dirty the trenches were. To exactly, start. yeah, yeah, and and just the bad immune systems that people were going to have because of poor nutrition, bad weather, exposure, all that stuff. I mean, all these factors go into it. Now, to jump into the fun speculation of did the Germans cause that? I think the answer is no, just based on what we have. However, if we want to play around with this a little bit. It would be not outside of the realm of possibility that maybe Germans were seeing similar things happening on their lines, and they made the connection between, you know, the waterfowl and uh, and the sicknesses that their people were getting. Mm-hmm. So then maybe they trained waterfowl to fly over the enemy lines. <laughs> That's the only way that that I think that that theory would hold. And up. the Luftwaffe was born. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just completely mispronounced. No, no, Luftwaffe. Yeah, I think that's how you say it. I, it's, I, I think it's supposed to be Luft, Luftwaffe because it's yeah, w. Luftwaffe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but so yeah, that's a fun theory. I I, I will obviously not endorse it uh, apart from just endorsing how fun it is. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, no, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, and the thing is, I I think that when people say that COVID nineteen originated in a lab, they might mean a lot of things, and I think unfortunately the people who criticize those who talk about a lab leak is what they're trying to invoke is this image of scientists, a bunch of Chinese scientists gathered around and creating a virus out of nothing. Right. And that doesn't happen. Because even if it did come from a lab, that's not how it would have come from a lab. It would have come from a lab out of negligence. Again, this is how most disasters happen is due to negligence and, and just mess ups. And in terms of COVID getting out of a lab, well, we know that they were doing gain-of-function research in that lab. We know that that included looking at zoonotic transmission, including from bats. They were looking at bats in that lab. And we know that the Chinese government was very quick to go after anybody who might have suggested that. That doesn't mean guilt, though. That's the thing. That is not evidence in and of itself. However, I do think that anyone who demonizes someone like Jon Stewart, for example, who I have a lot of problems with, but when he just jokingly brought up like the the lab leak hypothesis, um, I think I just did the thing I mentioned earlier. Like I was interchangeably saying hypothesis and theory, but anyway, (laughs) um, he was he was attacked for it. He even himself said recently in uh, one of on one of his shows or on something I don't remember what it was, but he talked about this how like he was called a racist for that. No, I I you know it's funny you say that because I remember bringing this up. I didn't bring it up in class, but I brought it up in private with one of my peers, and Uh she she kind of looked. (laughs) <laughs> a little uncomfortable with t- kind of even toying with the idea that it w- came from a Chinese lab, whatever that means. Sure. And was pretty quick to not really dismiss it, but just to kind of say like, well, the evidence doesn't really support that. And, and that's fine. That's, that's a, that's that a, idea. And I think yeah. it was, it did sort of, I got the impression that there was a racial component. Right. 
And you're also talking about uh, people who take very seriously the idea that America and China are have been engaged in a sort of cold war for a long time now at this point. And uh, I think, I mean, that's the interesting thing is uh, his, the historian Neil Ferguson, who I referenced earlier, he was talking about this once. Um, I think it was he was on Lex Friedman's podcast. I don't remember where it was, but he was talking about how he was giving a talk somewhere. It was, I think it might have actually been in China, but I could be wrong. Regardless, is that there were Chinese people and like other historians in attendance and or policy people. And he was talking about the reality that even if we in America or in the West don't see the relationship with China being that of a Cold War, the Chinese see it that way. At least the Chinese government sees it that way. And after the talk, he claims these Chinese policy people, I think they might have been working for the government – like came up to him and said, you know, you're right. Like, I don't know why the West, the West can't get out of its own ass when it comes to this sort of thing. Now, it's not evidence of anything other than that Neil Ferguson told a story that, you know, people yes ended him about, but it does bring to mind the reality that China and America have a fraught relationship. And I get why people would be quick to dismiss a theory that implicates at least the Chinese government in terms of negligence and a subsequent cover-up because at that point, America has a much stronger leg to stand on to engage in uh, greater conflict with them. So if someone wants to say that they don't want to speculate about a lab leak theory because they want to preserve what little relationship America and China still has, I actually would be like, okay, I get you. I, I don't agree because I think the truth is always you know, the, the ideal, but I, I, I can understand that position. Especially as somebody who has ties to China himself, like not the government before anyone right. gets excited, <laughs> but just members of my family. Now, if it does turn out to be, and 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 we're just spitballing here, this is right. a fact. If it does turn out to be true that the coronavirus that was responsible for this pandemic actually came from the Wuhan virology lab, I think it's called. What yes. is what what? What does that say about our relationship with China? And would there be any legal recourse mm. for people who have lost family members to the virus? Well, on an ethical, from an ethical standpoint, I'd say absolutely at that point, like, you know, for gross negligence. But I, you know, we're talking about something that, you know, to bring up the word I keep using, the, uh, the, the level of disruption that this caused. It was a global pandemic, even though it didn't kill nearly as many people as past pandemics have. It right. was such a massive disruption and has caused so much mass hysteria, especially in our country. Uh, I, I don't, I think, I think a lawsuit is, the best we could hope for, <laughs> like an attempted lawsuit that, of course, Chinese courts would just like ignore. Yeah. Um, and in action, to be perfectly honest, lawsuits could provoke something far worse. I mean, that's what I'm saying is that we're talking about something that is so charged, that is so epic in scope that I, I, I wow, I'm not usually speechless. <laughs> um, <laughs> like in my own imagination, but I, I can't see anything good coming from. That revelation coming out, which is going to sound like I'm advocating for censorship, but I'm not. I'm just saying that it's – I think my point of we are in for a rough future is going to be an understatement if that comes out. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. That's fine. <laughs> well, not the rough future. That's not fine. But no, that's not fine. I'll take I mean, your well, future is – okay. Here's the thing that I like to also say is that there's never a time where there's not problems, which is kind of an obvious thing to say. I understand yeah. that, but it, yep. it's again, the problems it's, uh, present themselves differently. 
Yes, yes. And, and but the they thing just is, keep coming up. Well, yeah, the thing is that, that that's what I was saying in my last episode of, of the podcast, um, the one that, that I called The Fictions of History, where I was saying that, look, the, w- people get this idea in their head uh, of there being cycles and whatnot. And there are cycles in history, like economic cycles and so forth. And that's not even really a cycle in history. It's just a cycle. Um, and uh, there are people who get in their head that were inevitably – heading in a good direction. The arc of justice or the arc of history bends toward justice is the famous MLK line. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be, is that him? I don't want to misattribute him, but the the point is he, the, the, these views are fundamentally flawed because they don't appreciate human nature or human psychology, I should say. Because again, I think because of our psychology, that's why people pick up on patterns and therefore see repeating cycles and whatnot. The truth of the matter is people just they, – they have – people behave basically in like eight different ways. I mean yeah. I'm, I'm being reductive. But it's like we do like eight things in our lives. We, we There's a limited number of behaviors and reactions that we have to things. And that's why we see like what seems like patterns going on. I think it's better to look at history, especially related to things like natural disasters and pandemics, especially pandemics, through a psychological lens or a social psychological lens while also looking at the history of it because what you're going to see is people behaving the exact same way just with the different tools they have available to them in the particular time in which they live. Like I guarantee you if there were smartphones during the Black Death, we would probably be seeing very similar behavior that we saw, you know, on Twitter <laughs> during COVID. You mean a lot of twerking? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. A lot of uh, people cooped up in their homes, like singing songs, like priests, like elite priests singing songs to make everyone feel better, and then everybody hating them because it didn't. Not actually in help California, everybody. you're not supposed to sing. That's how you spread. <laughs> yeah, but if you sing inside your sealed inside your home, and if you make mo- millions upon millions of dollars, you can sing "Imagine" to your heart's content, and people mm, yeah. will celebrate you for it. That's yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, that's true. although thankfully nobody celebrated those people for that. In fact, that was one of the most widely mocked things that came out of Hollywood during that time, and it was uh, it was delicious. <laughs> you know, when you're a professional pretender, yeah, well. <laughs> Yeah, the stuff that you artist, yeah, exactly. You do on social media should probably be viewed as not one hundred percent genuine. Exactly, it's 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 about keeping people. It's about keeping yourself in the public conversation. It doesn't even matter how people react to it because if you keep yourself in the public conversation and stay relevant, you'll be cast again. That's another one of those moments of cynicism I can offer about Hollywood. Well, I, f- I feel like we've sort of been all over the place, but I, I think this Hell was yeah. a very good conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. I'm, I'm yeah. more than happy to come back, and I, I'm excited to have you on my show once uh, I get some things settled. And yeah, I don't want to say too much, uh, but I want to talk to you about the NKVD and especially a guy named uh, Beria. Uh, yes, that point. guy. Oh, yeah, that guy. That guy. That, I'm sure yeah. your listeners don't need to be – Reminded. Like, I don't think. Yeah, they don't need to be. They probably don't want to be reminded of him. No, not really. No, probably not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, thank you again for having me, man. Of course. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug while you're here? To plug? Well, I, I feel like most of the people I listen to my show have probably heard of you. Sure, sure. And if not, that's that's great. I hope to get some new listeners. I, uh, but I, I do have some things coming out in the very near future. To the people who are asking, yes. The Muslim Nazis is coming back. It is not gone. I have not pod faded. I have not given up on that. 
I think I might have referenced this earlier when we were talking. I've been learning about Yugoslavia. Anyone who's ever read anything about Yugoslavia or the Balkans in general probably knows what I mean when I when I say that. It's extremely complicated and I really don't want to get things wrong. And I'm probably still going to get things wrong. So I'm I'm playing very careful with that one. Um I I do have uh the Substack, like I mentioned before, it's historyimpossible.substack.com historyimpossible.substack.com. That's how you say it. He's speechless from the COVID questions. I know I am. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so that's a good place to go to like get my thoughts on various things. I'm currently working on, uh, this is going to sound really strange. I'm currently working on a book review of a fiction book um, that I'm going to try to make historical in context in context i guess in a little bit but it's uh i'm a big fan of brett easton ellis and i just finished reading his new book the shards which is like a time capsule to 1980s la from the best i can tell and uh it's it's just really interesting um a really good book uh but uh yeah so the Substack is a great way to like follow me um but I do have another proper episode coming very soon. I don't know when this is going up, so maybe it'll already be out by then. Uh, let's just put it this way. If you were paying attention, you know what I'm probably going to be talking about because I kept talking about the Black Death. So, <laughs> uh, and, I, and I'm only saying that because I'm pretty sure my episode is probably going to come out before this one. So it won't be, it won't be a surprise uh, anymore because I am trying to surprise everybody with it. So uh, yeah, um, that's basically it. I think the 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 best thing that people can do to hit me up is uh, follow the show on Apple Podcasts and rate and review it, and consider supporting me on Patreon. That's just History Impossible at Patreon. So yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. Can people follow you on social media? And where? oh yeah, that's probably important. Uh, yeah, there's a there's of course uh, Instagram, which is just History Impossible at History Impossible. It's a uh, it's a good way to get visual aids to the stuff I talk about. I do have Twitter. I mostly – I don't really know. I don't think I use Twitter as much for the show as much as I probably should. Instead, I just tend to uh, shit post and say and, – and get into <laughs> arguments with people and stuff like that and, and say okay. – I won't try to pick a fight with Michael Tracy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Even though I've already fought with him a couple times thanks to what he did to Chris Jobs. But yeah, the um, but yeah, on Twitter it's uh, at A R A D E R V O N at A Raider Vaughn. Surprisingly, History Impossible was a handle that was taken, so I don't have that. Hey, I'm in the same boat. Secret Police was taken. I mean, that's uh, a pretty. That would be a pretty dope name to get. So I see why someone might have taken it, but yeah, I still would, really I should reach yours. out to them and see if I could buy it from them cuz I like I like my I actually like my handle. I think it's funny, but I when it's in like a uh, a batch of other handles yeah. like it's definitely not very descriptive. Well, right, but I, I, man, I really don't want you to get rid of Hush Popo. That's so cool. <laughs> I, <laughs> okay, it's, it's, I, won't. I, just, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like um Greg Zink of Smokefield Rooms who I still think he has the best podcast name of everybody who has a podcast. It's such a cool evocative name. His is called Smoky Rooms Pod, I think. So, yes, yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty, I immediately that's a think of the handle. X-Files when I think of Smokefield Rooms. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so yeah, you can follow people can follow me on Twitter. They can uh, also go on Facebook and go find History Impossible there. That actually is the place that where I've ha- I have the most followers, um, but uh 
I mostly just share like stuff related to the show on there. If you want to like get like a window into how I'm a jerk on Twitter, then yeah, you can follow me there though. too. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, Alex. I appreciate no it. No problem, man. Again, I'm excited to have you on mine uh, in the very near future. I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Thanks a lot, man. And speaking of social media, you can find Secret Police on Twitter at hush underscore popo, Instagram at Secret Police Podcast, and consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash secret police podcast. Subscribe, follow, and don't keep Secret Police so secret. Share it. Agents dismissed.